Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello there, and welcome to episode six of the Wealth Co. podcast. Today, we have someone truly special on. Someone who I look up to, and who embodies to me the essence of a true warrior. Dr. Naisha Winters is a world-renowned naturopathic doctor who focuses on integrative oncology. In her 20 years of practice, she has helped patients with cancer, ranging from stage 1 to terminal to recurrences. She herself was diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer at the young age of 19, and she boldly decided that the diagnoses her doctors had given her was not going to be her story. And so she pulled herself out. It's an incredible story and one that we get into. What I enjoy Nasha, besides the fact that her name is similar but very different to mine, pronounced Nasha, not Nasha, is that she is a connected thinker. Where some doctors stop at the first step, Nasha looks deeper and keeps digging to understand the terrain of things. She looks to link the medications with genetics, with environment, with glyphosate in your food. She looks to optimize the whole person rather than just pieces. Dr. Nasha's book, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, is one that I recommend to anyone who has cancer or as who potentially has cancer and is sick of being scared. I know that you'll enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed having it, despite the heaviness of some of the topics and the tears at the end. It's a long chat, but it's one that's well worth your time. Get ready to take some notes because the amount of knowledge that Dr. Nasha is about to throw at you is absolutely bonkers. Enjoy. winters my gosh look at you welcome 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 so so good we've been trying to do this for some time just in general no I mean just our own like let's talk for three hours because we can I mean I'm I'm about to learn a lot in three hours or (laughs) so I can't wait it goes both ways but here we are in pandemonium here we are full on What what day I know I know. Like, you know, I'm sitting here looking at, at this screen back and um, right before we got on, I was kind of bawling my eyes out from some bad news. And you're like, no, let's, let's bring this right into the conversation. So um, yeah, I mean, you're kind of talking about the gloomy weather. We're talking about kind of the state of the world around us, but also these little personal moments that are deeply impacting our lives and those that we love, you know, and that's why we're talking today because cancer schmancer, man, it is a, it's a big one. And I would tell people it's never just cancer, right? It's so much bigger than that, which we'll, of course, dive into in the next few hours. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if, for those who don't know you, uh, you, in my opinion, embody everything that WealthCo is about. WealthCo is, it's for doctors, it's for researchers, it's for entrepreneurs, it's for health explorers, it's for people and women, kind of women who want information, want knowledge, and are sick and tired of just taking what is given to them. And I just have to follow that authority. And you are all of that. You are a doctor, you are a researcher in cancer, you are an entrepreneur for your own business, you are a health explorer, and you're an author. It's hard for me to keep up, hence why I need transcriptions, I need coffee. And so here we here we are. <laughs> you know, it's funny, you, you say all those things. And I think just as as women in general, we are all those things all the time anyway. 
And so it's such a, a funny thing. And we'll tie, kind of dive into the, the history here in a little bit, but we wear all those hats all the time without even recognizing that we're all of those things you just went through. I think that this is the perfect venue to start to explore that a little bit further and help people have the awareness of what they already have in their toolbox, what they already know, what they already connect with, what they already intuit, and then help them really hone that craft, if you will, for whatever. Because I love on your, the wealth side, like, what are you interested in? And, you know, like biohacking and, you know, body, like all these different things. And I love all the women saying all of it, you know, and I'm like, ditto, ditto, because they all, none of them happen in a silo and they all spill out and impact each other. So it's, it, your, your um, forum is a blast. I mean, I, I wish I had unlimited time to really dive in. It's fascinating. Even today, I want to talk about the study that you posted today, which we, it's actually um, already in my, in my uh, uh, notes to kind of discuss with you. But it's so funny that you pulled up this study about the BRCA gene and, you know, we'll, we'll get into that too. To start us off, um, my, when I think about biohacking, when I think about health, uh, part of the thing that's missing is intuition. And I think you, your story of getting diagnosed with cancer at 19 and then saying, I'm not gonna, this is not my story. I'm done. And, and pulling back and really healing yourself. To me, that is a story of intuition. That's a story of saying, I know that there's other ways. I don't know what those ways are just yet, but I know that there's other ways to heal myself. Uh, so I think I think a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to get into the nitty gritty, and it's going to be about the various genes. It's going to be about testing. It's going to be about all the all the things that people can do, either from a diagnosis standpoint or from prevention standpoint for cancer. Maybe just to get us started, because you have been in this health world since you were a kid, effectively. What have you seen that women's health? How has it changed over the over the course of your life? So you know, it's interesting. Um, I was just telling someone yesterday, the day before, just, this is just general statistics. So when I graduated from medical school, the average age of the patient with cancer that I saw was 68 years old. And that was pretty epidemiologists and World Health Organizations and NCI and all those things were saying that. Today, the average age of the type of patient I see is 48 years old. So you asked about what changes have happened in 20 years. Well, basically a 20 year shaving off of our mitochondrial health so that we're experiencing more chronic disease states that were originally considered diseases of the older, you know, the older population are now hitting us younger and younger. And that is such a classic example of epigenetics, which we'll talk about, you know, further in our discussions today. But that's one thing that's changed is that you never, so a glioblastoma, for instance, those were 68 year old white guys who had the Bluetooth in working on, you know, wall street, who slept with their cell phone under their pillow and drank and ate like absolute shit. And just that's where you saw glioblastomas, right? Today, that is the fastest growing cancer worldwide under the age of 35. Like no one's saying what the F of course I am, but that's, you know, but it's like, I'm alone in that. Just like colorectal cancer was always kind of a, a an obese older gentleman you know, it didn't really matter on socioeconomic or color of their skin or their heritage. It was just really like a very, everyone kind of knew like, oh yeah, you've been sitting around eating, you know, bologna for the last 50 years. And this is what you have and smoking your cigars. And so everyone kind of saw that, but the second largest, fastest population of growth in cancer is the colorectal cancer among those under 35 as well. So we're still putting all of our attention and all of our focus and all of our research predominantly into older white guys. 
You know, that's just where it's been. We're, we're dealing with some of these issues right now. So we're seeing disparities in socioeconomic with relation to our health. We're seeing disparities with uh, heredity, your skin color with regards to health. But there's also those same disparities among men to women in health. So a really good example of that, for instance, is heart attacks, heart disease. We learn in the textbooks, we learn in medical school that the first signs is like, oh, my jaw is feeling really tight. And then I feel this pain into my arm. And those are like, oh, get thee to an ER and you know, you're going down and here comes a heart attack. Women don't have those symptoms. We don't We do not manifest in the same way. In fact, most women, it manifests as sort of like a little GI, like a little bit of little dyspepsia, a little GI upset, maybe just a little tired, just kind of a little off. It's way more subtle. And it's so much like, I think it's very interesting that it affects our gut. So there's this kind of vagal nerve component. There's this HPA axis component. There's this gut brain axis component. I think about even the esoteric of gut feeling because they'll often say, I just have a feeling something's off. Like there's, and it just kind of comes out. And that's when suddenly 12 hours later, they're gone or they're in the hospital, like something like that. So we, even as women, it's like our symptoms just present so differently that we can't qualify, quantify them, put them in a textbook and say, this is what you look for and you're good. Um, Same thing with like the types of cancers, like ovarian cancer, this quote unquote silent killer that by the time it's big enough and loud enough to capture your attention, it's stage four, you know, like almost every time. And that's why of the 24,000 women diagnosed with this condition per year, 17,000 of those die because there's only 24,000 of them dying a year. Um, we don't put our research dollars there because we like the sexy running for the cure. You know, everyone's excited about doing something because there's 350,000 women diagnosed every year with breast cancer. So all the others take a back seat. So you talked about what's different. It's like, we still follow the almighty dollar. We still research follows volume. If you come up with a blockbuster drug to treat 17 to 25,000 women a year, your bottom, you know, it's not really great investment return on your investment, you know, years and the millions, if not billions of dollars, that's going to go into that research project. But Hey, you've picked the low hanging fruit of 350,000 women a year diagnosed with breast cancer. You have all these bullshit runs and all these, even if you go, you know, make the headlines to say, wow, this just gave you an extra six weeks of life, despite the fact that you're pooping your pants and bleeding out your eyes. Here we are, you know, here we go, everyone get on these new drugs. And we just swallow it hook, line and sinker. We don't question it. We just move into the standard of care and we think someone's got our best interests but the best interest is the return on investment into that particular research. And it follows the volume, it follows the dollars. So when you talk about what's happened in medicine in the last 20 years, I was jaded 30 years ago from what I was experiencing in Western medicine. I'm even more so jaded today because machine and the beast and the corporate um, industrialization of our healthcare system is more prominent than ever. And the worst part of it is if you are like me and you try to speak out against it, you are social media burned at the stake. You are absolutely quack watched. I loved it. When I made quack watch a couple years ago, I'm like, I made it. Like, it's like people like you look for Emmys and, you know, like, I'm like, I made quack watch. Like that was a big deal. Like we had a celebratory evening around that, you know, and those are the crazy pieces. But then I have people also, I, I've literally had people say to me, watch your back. And not like in a, be protective, I'm worried about you. More like, 
speaking at a conference where I'd have somebody in the corporate world come up to me and basically threaten me. I was speaking some truths because I don't, I'm, I'm passionate and I'm into integration, but I'm also a scientist. That's where this began. And so my interest in medicine started before um, my terminal diagnosis. I was, you know, pre-med. I was my first job in college before my diagnosis. I was a CNA. I got my certified nursing um, assistant credentials at 18 years old. I also got my CAC one, which is a certified addictions counselor. I made it all the way to level two in Colorado. Um, So I had all those things. So I was both a CAC and a CNA all before I was 20 years old, you know, working grave shifts at a detox and a psych unit, um, overnight shifts and a residential um, rehab center. I worked in a nursing home. I was the, um, on a, did grave shifts there, an Alzheimer's unit. My background in medicine, I mean, I was in that from the earliest, youngest of time. And I had to work graves because then I was also taking, I was dual majored. I was biology, chemistry, carrying a massive workload in school while working night shifts to cover it because I'm the only person in my family to go to college, much less on to grad school and whatnot. And where I came from, you, you, you know, you, you got pregnant, you, you lived in a trailer and you, if anything, you might become a secretary. That was like a lofty goal from where I came from. And maybe an associate's degree might be like stepping out. So I was in no world because now I was suddenly the you're, uh, you're highfalutin because you left Kansas, you left that zone, and you also went to college. So I was completely disenfranchised from that community. And then the other community was um, poor white trash from poverty. No one, you know, no, when, I love when I go places and you're like, where did you go to school? You know, yeah. <laughs> that I'm like, Fort Lewis College in Durango. You know, I get all excited and they just, the, the, the conversation stops there. Like suddenly I lost all credibility because I didn't go to an Ivy League. And I'm like, fuck your Ivy League. You know, your Ivy League is killing my patients today. Your Ivy League institutions are still leading the people right off the cliff. The sheep are still following it right off the cliff here. So the system is broken and part of- And isn't that part of it as well, right? And it's like that, it's, it's that we are so wanting to believe authority. We are so, I mean, mean, it stems from childhood, right? Where you want to believe your parents, you want to say, okay, you've got this or somebody who's in a, in an authority figure, because it's easier rather than saying, okay, I'm going to carve my own path, or I don't believe you, or I need to see this for myself and try this out for myself. And so I think that part of this whole medical thing, like the issues is that yes, one, we are very easy to want to believe in authority. And that authority could be in a white coat, a lab coat that can be in, in the view of seeing a lot of ads online. And so, yeah, you see these ads for these drugs, which yes, are, is there a place for drugs in certain cases? Yes. I am not completely against pharmaceutical. However, you know, it's a lot easier for people to say, I'm going to take this pill, even though the last 15 seconds of the ad is saying you might have this and this, and then, and and all these issues and then rectal bleeding and et cetera, et cetera. But people very easily take these drugs. Whereas when you say, Hey, listen, you need to go and for six months, completely change your diet, or you need to be taking these things, go to India to an Ayurvedic hospital or go for the Gerson therapy or things like that, which is a lifestyle change. Then that's, that's the quackery and that's woo. -woo, And that there's no science behind it. 
right, right, right. I'm like, all right, those N equals ones don't mean anything and all the data we collect. Well, and it's interesting, you know, you talked about what other things have changed in 20 years. When I started in medical school, so there's a really, two really good examples. My medical textbooks, so like Guyton, Physiology, and I can't even think of the other big names, but like the typical, they're the exact same medical textbooks, whether you're in naturopathic school, DO school, MD school, they're the same, like, you, you know, physiology, biochemistry, anatomy, like you, you learn all of those basic sciences from the same textbooks. It's, it's just the basics. There's, like the, there's our agreement, there's our common denominator. The philosophy over time is what differentiates us and how we approach it and how we think about it and how we embody it. But when I started in medical school in 1996, the textbooks, there were no ads, there was nothing in them. Today, you pick up a medical textbook and they're loaded with drug company ads. How completely insane is that? And when I go to college, when I visit colleagues in the UK and you're like, you don't have commercials for drug ads. It's illegal. We are so brainwashed in this country. So that's changed. We now have commercials. So everyone's like, while they're eating their Big Mac, you know, watching TV, like, I gotta take that metformin or whatever it is. And it's like, keep on keeping on. You're in that thing, like, I'm trying to learn how to help my patients, but every other page in their textbooks, like in your face, in your face, in your face. And if you deviate from this, you are, you know, shunned forever. You know, so that was one big change. The other big change, which is very interesting, and this is such a classic example of medicine gone awry, is in 1996 when I started school, cutoff for triglycerides was 399. The cutoff for lip, uh, LDL was uh, 299. You did not have HDL. Like none of those things were on there. Nobody knew about APO, you know, APOE, 3, 4. Nobody knew about homocysteine. No one knew about pseudoreactive protein or galactin 3. Like nobody knew of those things. We were just like, oh, cholesterol is the problem with cardiovascular disease and the number is too high. So now we have to lower the number. Like we didn't talk about, well, how do you lower the number in life? Or how do we know that that's even not an, a wrong number? Like we, we just made up a story that we continue to tell ourselves today. And also later in 1996 is when statin drugs came out on the market for the first time. Husband a few years later, started working for Merck and selling these drugs. So he got to see it first, you know, hand of like, wow, this was a marketing deal, not a health, you know, deal. And we started to, for the first time in history, change lab values based on a target for the drug than the actual health outcomes for the patient. And yet with these medications that have now been on the market for 20 some years, 24, 25, 26 years, we have not changed cardiovascular events one iota. They're still the number one cause of death worldwide, although cancer is quickly catching up to that in 12 EU countries and soon to be in the United States, it will overtake cardiovascular disease as the primary cause of death. But we haven't changed anything. And of course, we've also learned, luckily, in the last decade that probably cholesterol, lipids, fats were the wrong tree to be barking at. Although if you still have a doctor who's concerned about your overall cholesterol number and your LDL, you need to fire that doctor and go get a new doctor. All right. If you have people still looking at that, you are really with a dinosaur. All right. So I tell people like the thing that we really watch is what's happening with your triglycerides and what's happening through HDL. Those are very important factors to look at because they show us a whole terrain picture. So triglycerides are above 90, you're dealing with fatty liver, metabolic syndrome, all kinds of issues of how you metabolize, all the toxins that are coming into you and around you, the way you metabolically function in general. If your HDL is low, you tend to be having problems with methylation, which ties into the BRCA conversation we're going to have here in a bit. 
And no one's looking at that. They're like, oh, got to get you, got to get that cholesterol down, got to get it down. We're now pushing to get cholesterol below 175. That's what the drug companies are pushing for. I will tell you this in the world of cancer, which is not naturopathic woo-woo, go into a PubMed search. It is an ominous sign when you see cholesterol levels under 165. It is ominous. You're looking for cancer. Number one, that's the red flag for cancer. It's also a major red flag for dementia, Alzheimer's. Hello, can, do these themes come into mind of mitochondrial dysfunction? You're destroying. You're destroying that because you are wiping out all the CoQ10 levels, ubiquinol, which is critical for the Krebs cycles. We're also trying to falsely lower something with a medication that is not changing things metabolically and is in fact worsening all kinds of other patterns. So those are just examples of what's happened in a couple of years that we have corporations running the show. We still have a very masculine dominated um, world. So for instance, in 2010 was the last study I saw. I haven't looked at it in a while. But in 2010, 93% of all physicians in the United States were male. 93%. It's probably a little bit lower than that now. I would imagine the last decade we've made a little headway, I would hope. 70%, however, of all healer, like in the allied healthcare professionals, whether you're an MP, PA, nurse, psychologist, et cetera, are women. So sort of the helper field, you know, is, is the female side. The other thing is there's still about a 40% disparity in our income. I did just see something interesting the other day. It's not quite 40%, obviously, but the average income of a male oncologist today with less than five years of experience is 395000 a year. I about fell over. I'm like, I'm clearly nowhere near that. Income. And a fee- and a female? Well, three fifty. So they're pushing up there. And the reason why they have to get paid high dollar is because almost half of us will experience cancer in our lifetime. But, but even that, that's a, almost a $50,000 a year difference. Now that was better than I expected for the female, but you still have to remember most oncologists are males. So the, that's still a very masculine dominated um, medical system. So that was really shocking to me, but there's typically about a 40% disparity difference between male and female health care workers. And what's interesting to me is that at least, again, think, think about the psychology of this. Why is it many, it's easier for men to trust other men. And it's also easier for women to trust other men. Why? That doesn't make any sense. You would think because you would trust your equivalent sex. You would think. However, again, there is something ingrained in us where when you hear somebody who's a man speaking about a topic, whatever the topic may be, you tend to give him more authority. You know, there was um, a woman, uh, what's her first name? Um, uh, Eliza Flagg. She was a 19th century physician and her quote, I may completely destroy it, but she basically said, women are born as doctors. Men have to train to become one. And it's so funny when we kind of take a little walk down the the medical, like the history of medicine, specifically with women in medicine. I'll, I'll, I wrote down a few things from my own brain to kind of remember on, because I actually did this presentation a couple of years ago. Women's um, History Month, Women's Health History Month. And, you know, that, that quote stuck with me and I started thinking about it and that's what started having me dig deeper. Okay, so why is it still 93% of these, you know, are men in this? So um, Hygieia and Panacea were the twins that were considered the daughters of Mother Earth, Rhea, Mother Earth. And Hygieia meant goddess of health and Panacea was all healing. And these two sort of iconic mythological characters are still to this day mentioned in our modern day Hippocratic Oath. How fascinating is that? 
right? So let's take this, let's just take this, hold on to that memory because it's going to come full circle here in a moment here. But one thing I want you to think about when we talk about doctor, doctor in Latin is docere, which means teacher. We have all but lost that ability to teach our patients. That's that also, as you're like doing that, it's like, that has been such the difference. And again, let me show you kind of the history of how that started to quietly insidiously, as we were talking about earlier, of how things kind of creep into your consciousness and you don't even know why or where it came from. So just to give an example, at 5,000 BC, um, Ishtar was, you know, kind of this amazing healer physician. 3,000 BC, we had Isis. 2000 BC, we had Polydomna, who was like the head of, she was like the Greek um, royalty, but she was also a very famous physician. These were all powerful female physicians. Like all known, everyone put their energy and focus into these healers who were the first gynecologists. I mean, these were your midwives. They were the first surgeons. These were your abortionists. You know, these were the, the people helping heal your wounds. Your first pharmacists, these were your herbalists. These were your first counselors, your wise women. Those were where medicine, we went to the women to seek our healing in the BC era. 450 BC, this is where I love how this has come full circle. Hippocrates considered the father of modern medicine today. He purchases, how freaking timely is this crazy little story? He purchases a female slave whose name has been lost, by the way, in the history books. No one knows what her name was, but he purchases a female slave who teaches him botanical medicine, surgery, bone setting, and anatomy. And she did so with one caveat, that he swore to recite the oath to the goddesses of healing. Hello, Hygieia, Anastasia, and the oath of first do no harm. And yet he is the man known as the father of medicine. And we do his oath, all of us in the medical field. When we graduate, we do the, the oath. No one even connects back into where that came from. And I'm like, how crazy. Like, again, there's like, here's this like slave. We're going through all these crazy times in life. I'm like, oh man, almighty. Then it gets, it gets even more fun. <laughs> so in um, 1100 AD, a lot of you've probably heard of this woman, but Hildegard of Bingen. She was a mystic. She also wrote one of the first medical texts, like really embodied outside of the Shraka Samhita, which is the oldest medical text out there from the Ayurvedic practice. Now, interestingly, both the Shraka Samhita and the mystic uh, writings of Hildegard, a lot of people, they actually share and the history shows that they were basically downloaded in hallucinatory mindsets. So yeah. So I'm just like, well, that's pretty fascinating, but no one's talking about that. It's like, great. You know, the mushroom God spoke to me or whatever. Like no one talks about that's actually where our medical texts came from. We're through these interesting lineages, but she was also Hildegard, this crazy cat at 1100 AD was also one of our original biohackers, <laughs> which I think is so stinking brilliant. And she actually in her writings in her textbook, I have her, some of her original works, um, but she talks that she was the first person talking the importance of low carb and emitting sweets to treat diabetes. 1100 AD. Yeah, yeah. In 1400 AD, so just fast forward a couple hundred years, this is when we had basically the biggest pushing out of women in medicine. And this, you'll love this, the barbarians, the barbers and the executioners are who bullied the women out of the field. And they, the barbers and the executioners, and this is all in all conventional medical like history, 
these guys became our first surgeons. So if you Google barber shops, that little circle, that little thing you see on barber shops, you would go and get your leg amputated. So, you know, there they had all their little clicky things and you know, cut your hair, but we can also cut off your leg while we're at it or your boob or whatever. So it's like, that was 1400. That was the year 1400. They collectively, these barbarians, the executioners and the barbers came together, pushed women out of medicine, except for gave them a little lane in midwifery. They're like, you can hang out here in midwifery. That's your safe. That's the non-threatening place. Despite the fact that women were the surgeons and you know, all of those things, doing their poultices and stuff to deal with infections and all those things for millennia. Fast forward 1520 AD, Paracelsus, also very famous in Western med in medicine, right? Like we think of him as also kind of like the next generation of Hippocrates. He learns essential oils and tinctures from women healers. And he also learned what is now, you know, coined as the doctrine of signatures from women healers, but he got all the credit for it. And then in 1550, this is another big one. So only 150 years after the barbers and the executioners took over, they decided it was also time then to get rid of the midwives and the herbalists. And that's when we saw as many as 9 million women murdered worldwide as you know, murdered for being witches. And those, the majority of those women were our healers, our herbalists, and our midwives. Violence and threatening of what was our birthright is what pushed this out. Does this also feel very timely in the world around us today? And so what I think is so fascinating is it would still be almost another 300 years before Elizabeth Blackwell, who is like one of my heroes, the first woman to get a medical degree in the United States at Geneva, Geneva Medical College in New York. In 1957, after her graduation, you know, it's almost a decade, just shy of a decade after her graduation, she started the first hospital in New York. And in 1968, she started the first all women's medical school. Bad assery is what this woman was, Elizabeth Blackwell. It just gives me goosebumps to think about what she must have been up against, what threats were given to her, what experiences she was living there. You know, and so we fast forward when we talk about like the Flexner reports and things that came out in the 1910s, it changed, really shut down all the homeopathic schools and naturopathic schools. And we really emboldened the AMA movement. And then after World War II, when we had all this leftover ammo, it's like, what the hell do we do with that? Hmm, this is a good idea. Let's put it into our food system or into our medical system, pharmaceuticals. That, you guys, is how we went completely off the tracks. And because of that, it was born of a very violent warmongering mentality that still suppressed down that innate healing, intuitive, feminine wisdom that's still dominant. I mean, my God, women were barely in, I mean, medical school environments, even after uh, Dr. Blackwell's work, right? And then that brings us, you know, up to today where we're still dealing with the, the still the dominant paradigm of who are the administrators in the hospitals, who are the directors in Medicare, Medicaid, the pharmaceutical industries, the insurance industries are still very, very male dominated. And even down to the cancer concept, 1971, the year I was born, we declared a war on cancer. How's that fucking war meme working for everyone? <laughs> and it's like, again, we keep trying to do this thing of, instead of invoking the natural, beautiful wisdom within, we trying to suppress and squelch it and kill it and remove it and, you know, napalm it. 
this is why we haven't seen much of a change in specifically cancer in the last 70 years, because we're still approaching it from this very patriarchal, masculine, warmongering, it's, it's, a, it's something bad that must be taken out of you, instead of recognizing it for what it actually is. It's a messenger. It's, it's a wake-up call. It's a, it's a call to action. It's, it is you. It's you with cells that have just kind of gone a little rogue and need to be gently reminded. My husband calls cancer cells orphan cells. They've lost their way. They've lost their completely alone in the world. And instead of like seeking community, they basically destroy community. Do we see that also in the world today? You can go either way. You know, you have a choice in how you respond to stressors. One can be that you attack it blindly, knowing that eventually you'll even kill the host. And the other is that you actually bring it back into the fold and, and fulfill its needs and nurture and nourish it back into a, a natural rhythm and back into its community that helps it really thrive. There's so much there, Nisha, that you just said that's just mind-blowing. Absolutely. I mean, from the idea of, of, the, of that history, I had never known any of that. That's fascinating. I think one thing that I, I've heard a lot is in Russian, Vedas and Vedma, right? So we have just like an, there's Ayurveda. Right. But so in Russian, the word Vigma is means which the word Vidit is to see. So there's a little bit of a, there's an interesting combination there of saying, OK, well, is it that the witches in quotations were really the ones that had were able to see because of the knowledge that they had? And it's, again, it's interesting to think how quickly you can rewrite history and just wipe out a, a population or wipe out something or just cut people at their knees, maybe, I mean, physically as, as well as emotionally and say, wait, discredit them and say, you haven't done this correctly, or you are a quack, or you're not pushing forth the, the agenda that we want. And many of these things, and now, and now we're getting a little bit into conspiracy theories, but you know, the idea, if you go into fluoride and why we have that in our water system, or, and, and if you look again in the history, it's, if you look at the facts, the facts don't line up. They don't make sense. Why are we, if, if, if fluoride is so great for us all, then why are we not putting vitamin C into our water? Why are we not putting vitamin D into our water? You know, if that's, if that actually is the truth, then let's go ahead and, and vitamin up everybody <laughs> and supplement everybody. And it's, and it is, it, it goes back. I think the story keeps on coming back, coming back to it's, it's marketing and it's how do you give people enough information or twist people's information to say, here we go. Here's the story that I want you to believe. And because I'm a figure of authority, then you're going to believe me rather than really questioning it and saying, this doesn't, something about this doesn't smell right. And my intuition says, "Mm -mm, I don't know about this one. And if you question the authority, you're already put into a particular bucket that their entire goal is to discredit. I've, I've only known this other bucket. I've only known the bucket of swimming upstream. I've only known the bucket of you will never be anything. You will never survive this. You will never change outcomes. You will never X, Y, and Z. Like that is all I've heard my entire life. And something in me, if you say it can't be done, please just get out of the way of the people that are doing it. The other part is, is as you start to actually make waves and you start to shift things and the consciousness starts to move around you, that's when you recognize how dangerous you are being, you know, you become 
how the world around you starts to perceive you and starts to persecute you even further. And that's this place where there is also not only are we seeing this in religion, politics, um, racial disparity, poverty issues, corp- you know, fighting up against corporations, we're even in an election year and all these things, but we're seeing this in medicine and healthcare in general. I mean, and the United States worse than anybody else because we're what 36th in outcomes worldwide have 10 times the medical care costs. It's ridiculous. We are, we, our medical care system is so much more expensive than anybody else's. And yet we are way worse in infant mortality. We're 36 in overall health. Here it comes like, how are we not questioning that the people in power are making buttloads of money and not changing things for the better? Like, wouldn't you fire a CEO of a company that was like, I'm going to, you know, we're going to spend this much and not have any return on investment, wouldn't they lose their job in any other business? But there are some people attached to like keeping the system broken is a business. When you say that, you're like, oh, conspiracy theory, there it is. Okay, I mean, it's, there's the common sense. There's just the start to ask. I mean, my husband started working for Merck thinking, I'm going to get in here. He was cancer drug design. He's one of the first people who learned about the KRAS protein, which now 25 years later we're spending billions of dollars on studying this to see if it'll help. And he's like, it's not, we knew that 25 years ago, stop doing that. You know, stop looking at that target and that treatment, expecting this outcome because we saw this and that's why it's buried 25 years ago. But because there's no other help, they're like, oh, yeah. keep digging up and see if we can like put lipstick on this pig and see if that helps, you know? Like, oh. So the, the system really is set against us. And he realized that very quickly. He's like, no one is interested in changing health outcome. It is an industry in and of itself. I had a, a friend of mine, his girlfriend was a cancer researcher. And when I mentioned this to her of, I think that cancer is a pretty great industry. Think about it. Why do we have for, for I don't know how many people are employed by it now. And I, when I say employed, I don't mean nefariously, but I do mean there's researchers who are out there who are trying to find the cure and doing all this great stuff. And there's breast cancer walks and there's how many mammograms are, are done every single year. Who has to pay for that? Who gets revenue from that? You know, there's, if you actually look at it and pull away, take the emotion out of it for just a moment, pull away from it and say, okay, what is the industry of cancer? And if we were to cure cancer, if we were to figure out a way to cure it, then what would happen to that industry? Where would those jobs go? Where would those people go and what would they do? And is it, and also then I think the reverberating effect as well is what, if we were to cure cancer, what does that unravel in in other industries, in other areas of health? And, And I think that because of that, it is a lie or a, a myth that we need to continue keeping up with. And there's, and so the things that you're working on, it's potentially more difficult, right? Than saying, okay, I'm just going to go believe my oncologist and go and get this surgery done, get radiation, get chemotherapy. And yes, that seems like, it's almost like if you're in a car, the metaphor, right? You're in a car and it's better for you to drive the really long way around when in reality, it'd be a much shorter for, and a little bit more painful, I suppose, to sit in traffic. And so in this case, the more painful route is a lifestyle change of saying, I'm going to live at sea level. I'm going to eat a specific diet. I am going to fast. Fasting sucks. I've started doing it and I, 
there are weeks that I really hate it, right? And it's, and it's, you know, you see these influencers, you see people just talking about it willy nilly and that it gets easier. For some people it does, for some people it doesn't. And so it's, I think maybe like that is the quackery that people see because it's difficult. Health, when you're trying to pull yourself out of 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of doing the same thing, eating the same foods, having a lifestyle in the same way, it's that the mindset shift is much more difficult than just outsourcing your health and saying, okay, I'm going to go to this doctor. He's going to tell me what to do. I trust him. He's great. He has had all of these different reviews and therefore he's right. And I think it kind of goes back to the conversation that we were having offline before about, you know, about what happened this morning. And if you're open to it, I would love, I'd love to, for you to share a little bit about that. So minutes literally before we got on, I received an email because I was looking to make sure I wasn't missing anything from you to get ready. So I normally try to avoid my social media, my emails stuff like that. But I saw this one and I saw the name of someone I know and love and recognize and have been keeping tabs on her because she and her family have been under my care for four generations, recently in the last couple of years, got married. And so kind of from that default, that family, you know, kind of fell under my tutelage, you know, the, the family jokingly always says, you know, WWMD, like everything, they, they all joke and say, we don't do anything without asking Nisha, like the, where this, you know, came from. But her new family she married into, they've always been a little like, is this like, yeah, quite, because they're very uh, part of the big machine, big and corporate, you know, world, business, industry, live in a, in a state that's very, very conservative, conservative medical AMA has some of the biggest, best academic university, you know, like all these pieces. It was only a couple, you know, maybe, I think it was even before these two got married that I found out that um, the man that she married, that his mother had had breast cancer in her past, didn't know that you know, because in my field, most people like quick to jump at they like, oh, you're into oncology. Almost everyone wants to like tell me their life story of, of an experience with cancer directly or indirectly. So, you know, I, I kind of found out secondarily. And when that happens, I recognize that they probably don't think much of the way I approach cancer. And so I'm not going to force that on anybody. Right. And even the son who married into this family, it took him a long time to warm up to me and my approach and my discussions. And now he's very trusting and implies a lot of things he's learned from me over the years. And probably because his wife would make him, you know, just like the jokingly piece here. But the mother um, of, of my friend's mother, you know, my, the mother-in-law, she had a recurrence a couple of years ago. And basically the family I've been taking care of for years, like begged, borrowed and steal to say, Nisha, even though I wasn't doing consults anymore were really pleading for me to do a consultation with her and support her. I'm like, okay, I'm, I really only train doctors now. I, you know, I'm kind of done with the direct patient care. I really am moving into this direction, but because they'd worked with me and known me for so long, they really want this. I thought, well, I'll just take a look and see if I can give her a little bit of guidance. And it was incredibly clear to me. And even to her and her husband who sat in on the, the call and had my 50 plus page assessment in front of them, you know, with all of my, with all the labs I required to look at and her epigenetics and all these pieces. And it was very clear as to why she had cancer the first time and why she ended up with it again. Super, super clear, you know, very, very specific on what was going on in her terrain, you know, bucket, if you will, even though she quote unquote did everything right and lived a really good life. The, the two big things that were driving for her were um, loads and loads of wine. We talked about this a little bit ago. Extreme, 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 extreme addiction to stress and putting herself in stressful situations and caring and worrying constantly that she just couldn't let that go. Those to me were the two biggest triggers. And in that, there were a lot of things in her lab showing the kind of driver of cortisol, so stress hormone driving estrogen 
um, cortisol driving insulin problems. Um, you know, not being able to self-soothe and being kind of anxious and very bata in her um, physical body, her yin deficient in her physical body. Plus, then she also had the full quote unquote standard of care years before, which then further degraded the immune system, the mitochondrial function, et cetera. So now we add age to that of natural mitochondrial functioning. Now we have what is very common in breast cancer in particular, that somewhere between five and 15 years later, you're gonna have a recurrence unless you get your ass in there and change the terrain, change the soil that, that made you sick. She never did that. She never explored why. She just followed orders, got through it. And you know, because she went back and after you hit the five-year mark in cancer, Everyone calls it cured and you're good and you're doing your walks for, you know, they were still donating tons of money to ACS and all those different things. So when she had this recurrence and I saw this, you know, I, she really wanted, she didn't want to go back to standard of care again. She wasn't going to do that again. I gave her all my assessments and then basically never heard anything. Didn't know what happened. Not a word, even though I'm still very close to her, her son and that whole bit, but I really didn't run into them, know anything that happened with her because they live in Florida. I live in Colorado. Found out kind of through the grapevine through her uh, daughter-in-law that she applied not a single thing I recommended, not one. It was just too hard, too much. Even with her husband on the phone, starting to get it and recognizing he was really against working with somebody like me. So I don't hear anything except for the fact that she went ahead and did a very aggressive standard of, med standard of care approach again. Repeat, same. It's like, that's the thing you sit there and go, you're going to do the exact same thing again and expect a different outcome. It's not a judgment. It's just that she, it was too scary to step out of that lane. And I wasn't even asking her to just step out of the lane. I'm like, bring these other things in to support the lane. And that was too much. She couldn't even do that because then she's hearing the bad advice of her academic experts that they put all of their faith and all, they put them on the pedestal who were like, oh, nope, can't, don't take anything. Don't take anything because that'll contradict. I'm like, what do you think I went to fucking school for? What do you think I spent $300,000 on my education for? You haven't taken a single class in any of these things. And yet you're dishing out your recommendations. That is insane to me. But I get that. I get fired up. I just have to understand. So I just found out she went standing way right and never did anything. So I get in January, my husband are down living, working in Mexico. And I get a desperate message from the daughter-in-law, basically like, it's bad. It's back. It's in her brain. It's leptomingeal metastasis, which typically in Western medicine, that's six months um, to live at best. I've worked with leptomingeal meds multiple times. It is considered non-curable in Western medicine. And the people who survive it are those who basically don't do what Western medicine suggests, because what they suggest is we're going to nuke your entire brain into oblivion, just to try and keep you alive, put you back on another really strong chemotherapy and hope we can kind of napalm a little bit and maybe get you up to six months. And what they don't tell people is if you live beyond six months and you've had whole brain radiation, your brain starts to melt at that point. So now you're dealing with severe cognitive decline, which will pick up momentum six months to two years after the radiation. So basically you necrose and melt the brain. That's what's seen on scans the whole bit. So my patients who had whole brain radiation, if they survive the cancer, like wiping their drool off their face in six to two, you know, months to 12 years. It sounds so horrible, but I, I'll, I'll sit there with a doctor, with a patient. I'm like, am I lying? Am I, am I making this up? And they, you know, it makes me just emotional right now as I'm thinking about this. And they're like, no, she's not lying, you know? And their whole reason why they even offer that, because they just want to do something. And I appreciate that. They feel empowered for what's coming. So instead they're like, well, we're just going to throw the last stitch effort at you and basically make your life hell for the last few months of your life. Well, she, I think got scared enough and finally woke up from the dream 
and listened to me and said, I'm like, please consult with a brilliant colleague of mine from Barrows Neurological in Arizona. They've worked with my patients. They are so familiar with Lepto. They're able to go and gamma knife and basically gently extricate that without radiating your whole brain and give you the time and the space to start to work on your train again and clean this up and turn this around. When I got the message that she finally did it, she had the consult, they headed to Arizona. I was like, wow, I did not expect that because they were, I was like second, I'm like trying to stay out of it. I referred them to another colleague that was helping them. So it kept me out of the equation because I think it was just too close. Um, heard from her doctor, I referred her to her for the family and heard from the team at Barrows that it was a hundred percent success rate. They got everything. And the one thing that I didn't, that I didn't think about is because she wasn't under my care. But I had said, you know, stay there, stay put. Here's some colleagues that do IVs, some hyperbaric, different things to like heal the body, heal the brain. Definitely, I'm like, don't get into an airplane and go back to Florida. That's the worst thing you can do after a surgery like that. You've got cancer, so you've got clotting disorder issues. She also has a lot of SNPs around throwing clots in general, ESR2, et cetera. She had high fibrinogen. She'd even had a high D dimer. So we check all those things post-op. Um, all these pieces, I'm like, just stay put and heal. So I don't hear anything until the doctor I consulted, you know, like referred them to, lets me know a couple of weeks ago, she came back to Durango to do her convalescence, which is where her daughter-in-law's family is from. And I about had a heart attack because right then and there, I know Arizona's um, elevation and I know Durango's elevation. Why I am no longer practicing and bringing patients into Colorado where I lived is because the elevation was killing them right? We were throwing more blood clots. We were having more pleural effusions, more lung issues, poorer oxygenation. I'm like, I love my beautiful little town, but this is not for people who've been beaten up by cancer or Western medicine. So that's why I'm building a hospital now in Southern Arizona. So people have a place to come and convalesce and do this work without the trigger and the extra pressure, literally, of the altitude on top of this. So it was a shock when I'd heard that she went back to Durango. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, like kind of worried about her potential. And then found out she had a pulmonary emboli. That's the only thing I heard, which of course didn't surprise me because I see that all the time. And I was like, damn it, she didn't get in an airplane, but she drove in a matter of years. Oh, sorry, pulmonary emboli is a blood clot in the lung. Okay. Um, and so I didn't think, because most people won't die of a PE unless it liberates and goes into the brain or other places. So I was bummed that she had that. I was like, well, of course she did. She went from low elevation to high elevation, blah, blah, blah. Don't hear anything nothing. Assuming, because everyone's like, look at the success of the surgery. Like, we're good. We're good. We're good. She's finally working with this doctor. She's like, ready. The doctor's day is like, everything they said to you three years ago, here's repeat it, do it. Now it's time. Everything was going. I just minutes, minutes before we got on this call, found out that she died. And she died of complications of a pulmonary embolism. She's not the first in this situation. I've had so many patients call their oncologist when I'm like, please don't get in an airplane and fly your kids to Switzerland after just having a portal vein blood clot and flying your kids to Switzerland for a ski trip right now. That is really a bad idea. So instead they bypass me and they go to their surgeon. The surgeon's like, no big deal. Do it. I mean, this woman made it to Switzerland. They had to fucking fly her back on a private jet because she embolied there, was on, you know, life support, like this whole thing. We got her. She'd had three recurrence of stage four breast cancer. We got her completely into remission, but she had this huge um, vein and uh, port, um, thrombus, blood clot in her portal vein. 
And I'm like, don't get in an airplane. I know you want to like celebrate that you're cancer free and all these things, like don't do it. And what did the paper and what did the whole community come out in our town and sell it? Oh, this woman, she died of cancer. I'm like, she did not die of cancer. Right. And this mother, this, this one, this woman who will never see her grandchildren, both of her kids got married in the last couple of years, both her boys and she'll never see grandchildren. You know, it's like, this was, did not have to happen. This woman, they were going to melt her brain and she did not die of cancer and she did not die of any of these things, but she died of a broken terrain that was never addressed all along. And that people ignored a crazy naturopathic oncologist recommendation and that drive to just sort of like trust the authorities. That's what kills people today. You know, and I, I have a colleague who just brought her daughter home from the hospital, five, you know, at three years old, was diagnosed with AML, terminal, not expected to survive, made it. Five years to the day had a recurrence. All the doctors said she'd be dead in a couple of days because she was in a major blast crisis. And through everything, the last couple of months, we have kept this kid alive. We were able to get high dose IV vitamin C mistletoe into the, uh, in, we were able to get her a ketogenic feeding tube. We were able to do everything in a hospital in Wisconsin. And over and over and over, things that this kid almost died of over and over in the last few months were nothing that I offered, even though they're like, it's definitely the herbs that are causing the problem. They were like telling her that, Mike, why don't you stop that drug that you're giving her for the biliary obstruction issue? Um, within two days, her liver completely re resolved. But of course, we're the quacks. Like everything. Finally, mom took her out of the hospital like a month before they wanted her to, plus quit all the drugs they had her on. This kid is thriving. But it's like the mom had to get so clear. And this woman is a PA. So is her husband. So they're medically trained. And she's a parent who's gone through this before. And she's, her specialty is pediatric oncology. And she's like, I can't believe I'm here doing this again. And she was riding that wave of exactly like, who do I trust? Who do I trust? And I just kept telling her, you trust you. What makes sense to you and everything I've trained you? Because she also was taking my my training program for physician. And that's what she's like now coming through this process, like daughter back home. She's like, this is way harder than anyone could ever imagine because she's been on both sides of this equation. The first, with the first rodeo, she did it their way. Then she spent the last five years learning and applying something different to her patient population. But when it came back around and affected her daughter again, she got seduced back into doing it their way until she realized, because of all the things she's learned, that that needed to have a lot of a different change, you know, total different experience than the first time around. This is why her daughter is home and why she's thriving and why now this woman's purpose is like, I will never, like my mission is to not have any other parent go through what I have gone through. And I feel like we hear these stories. I mean, JJ Virgin, we've, a lot of people have probably heard of that story of where she basically had to go under the radar and put omega-3 and into her son's feeding tube because everybody would have said that's not allowed. Especially when you get into mama bear mode of saying, I am fixing this and I am helping my child. Enough. Forget this. You're all wrong. Uh, but it's also, it, it has to take, get to that stage rather than doing that for yourself. Cause that's really quite difficult to do it for yourself because it, it is petrifying to go against all of these, these recommendations. Like everybody, I think a lot of people have had 
either cancer in their family or had fam- friends or so, some somebody has had the big C in in their life. And for me, I'm seeing it and saying, I'm lucky to have the, the, my family members still with me. And now it's if and when I, I do get that, then my approach is going to be completely different because I see the challenges and the, the things that were messed up in Western medicine that have affected her throughout the, the past 10 years. And had she done a different approach, she would probably wouldn't have the complications. Now, that being said, in the moment, you do exactly what is given to you. And the options that were given to her were very, very clear cut. And you you get petrified because you don't have Nisha sitting next to you saying, wait, here's the program. Here's Here's all the case studies of a natural approach. Here's what we're going to do for the next month. And then in the next month, we're going to reassess. And it's, and that, I, I love that that tide, I think is shifting, but it's very, very difficult psych- psychologically to go up against the system as a patient when you don't know that there are all these options around. And also the story that you just told, which is heart-wrenching because exactly what you just said, it is, it's not even about the care it was the lifestyle. It was just literally just changing where she was spending her night sleeping. <laughs> it was and, and the elevation change. And who's going to tell you about that? Which accredited surgeon or oncologist is really going to say, oh yeah, your where you live could impact your health, which is so basic and so obvious. <laughs> Here's something very interesting. I wanted her to get hyperbaric oxygen in Arizona. And everyone was like, no, the pressure, she could throw a clot, that could be bad. But no one questioned about her hopping in a car and within seven hours being in a, you know, seven foot difference. Like no one not wanting a medically supported, visually placed in a hospital setting in an environment where you have access to all of the metrics and all the ways to test, assess, address this and know how to support. But it didn't occur to anybody that maybe hopping in a car. I mean, we would, I think everyone would probably agree, don't get on an airplane right now. Although I've seen many, many, many times over doctors like, no problem, hop on. I'm like, oh my God, you know? And again, knowing this person's history a bit more, they had these clotting predispositions and other things like that should have probably been a little bit more in the discussion. And because that person wasn't under my care at that decision, I will be carrying that forever. Like, could I have said something more? Like, I didn't even know. It was like an after fat that I heard that she was back there. And an after fat, I'm like, well, of course she had a PE. And then an after fact of she died of that. Like, I, like, I just can't even get my mind around this right now. And even like talking about the woman I told about, just told you about the woman who took her daughter out of the hospital early. If she had refused standard of care, she would be in, in jail and her daughter would have been taken into childhood custody. So if you have a kid under 18 that refuses standard of care therapy, the parents can go to jail and the children can be taken out of their home. So she was only, not only was that up against everything she believed in herself, but the system. And I've known families who've moved from states to basically take shelter in environments that were much more akin to letting them make their own decisions. And there are a lot of kids live alive on this planet today because of that. You know, and I follow like the Stern method family, the Sternigal family have become really good friends. I've watched them do this with their son, Ryder. Like he'd be dead today if they were still in the state of Washington. You know, pretty much all of them, but they went to Utah, right? 
And so um, the Mormon church and other places are certain like communities, like you can probably get away when places with like the church of Latter-day Saints or Mormon or Christian scientists, you probably can get into some communities to sort of refuge there. And those are based on philosophies and re and religious sort of um, affiliations that then the government really can't, although they're trying to change that, but they really can't then impact those decisions if they're based on exemptions based on your spiritual beliefs. Like, like blood transfusions, for instance, in the um, um, Jehovah's Witness, like those are things. Now, then you, of course you hear when they make international news, when a patient, you know, when a child dies in one of those patients, everyone's like those horrible parents. I bet a million bucks if you took a bird's eye view and you looked down at that situation, you'd realize that kid would have probably been dead a hell of a lot sooner had they gone into the actual system. Now, I say that knowingly, obviously, but I've, no, I've been close enough to these types of cases in my career to be able to take that bird's eye view with people, to take a look and be like, like this kid, you know, like it, it, if her mother wasn't so pushy, she would not be here right now. There's no way. Because we knew she'd be taken out of the home if we didn't follow that. And they weren't ready to move their practice or lives or other kid to another state from Wisconsin. They just built, like, got a farm. All these things going on. It's like, yeah, you know. And, and the crazy thing is um, the trigger for this little kid's recurrence was she joined a really cool outdoor school program. Like a, like living off the land. Kind of like very, you know, Waldorf-y. Um, but she and her brother ended up with major pesticide poisoning. Because they were spraying around the area. Now, her chemistry, because of five years prior going through major chemo and something that's very impactful in the uh, bone marrow, AML, um, a particular type of leukemia, her brother had the same toxicity but didn't get cancer, but he also didn't have his entire system destroyed five years before with standard of care. So for her, it toppled her completely. Now, we know with childhood cancers, if they've had treatment, they will have cancer again in their adulthood. You know, at least at the very, like, it's like 98% of the time, you know, it's really ridiculous. They will definitely have some chronic illness sequelae into this. They were trying to get this eight-year-old girl to take hormones to harvest her eggs so she could have children in the future. I'm like, they're telling you she's not going to be alive for two weeks and they're wanting to put her through an invasive process and put, hook her up on tons of drugs to pull her eggs now so she might be able to have children in the future. I'm like, this, the, the priorities get really wonky here really wonky they're like she's not gonna live but we're gonna really take and i'm like do you have good insurance or something because all of the overzealous preemptive treatments they were trying to give her you know telling the mom she's going to have mucositis it's going to be so bad she's gonna have to get on a feeding tube like well let's put on the feeding tube now and let's preempt that so we were able to do that and did it all keto they they fought us tooth and nail on having this kid on keto despite the fact that the literature shows that leukemic cells have 10 times the amount of insulin receptors on their cells than healthy cells. So that's, or the other cancer cells are healthy cells. So it's like, it is a sugar slug. We learned early on, they were trying to pump her with steroids and um, lactate ringers, which is just basically sugar water in her IVs. We were like, why is it so hard for her to get into ketosis? Suddenly we realized they were going behind the mom's back and like sneaking shit into her body. Like who's the, who's the, who's the here? So mom, we had to be like a a mama bear. Big, and then, you know, COVID happened and then she literally got locked down into the hospital with her daughter while her husband was locked down out of the hospital with their son during this transition. It's like, wow. And then she had to run, she had to run that. And then she had to also fight against what her husband's like. Now he's a PA also out of the system, hearing things like, you should be doing this. Are you sure that you're like, he was so distrustful because he wasn't in it. He wasn't in the place to feel it, to see it himself. So he was, so she was being 
fought against by the medical system, by her fear, and by her husband's ideologies. And had she listened to any of those three things, this kid wouldn't be here. And there were times that she acquiesced to it, you know, like fell into it, but quickly pulled herself back out when she's like, oh, look at that, how different that was. Someday I'm, I'm like, please write your story. Please write this story. And she did a little bit on her social media recently, but I'm like, this is so compelling. Because she did it as a practitioner, a parent, a, a person who treats pediatric oncology, as well as a second rodeo with it, with very different information and skill sets now. Matt, you alluded to that earlier. It's like, we don't know what we don't know until we know. And the weird thing is for me, like you talked about with your mom, like what, what your mom went through. And you're like, you even said something. So I want to bring you back to the languaging you use, something about if and when, almost like an expectation because your grandmother had breast cancer, your mom, there's like this like belief system, you're going to have this. And maybe not knowingly, but you, my dear, have taken a very different route because of another health condition that gave you an opportunity to start to dig in and change your own terrain. Cancer is in all of us all the time. Every single one of us, all of your listeners, everybody here, we all have it all the time. It is a part of our evolutionary existence. It is absolutely of us. And so it is all about the terrain, what those cells float around in, what's communicating around them. And they're actively listening of what information we're sharing with them. That's diet, lifestyle, relationships, jobs, stressors, chemical exposures, whatever. And because of another health condition, it's like you were given a running start and you had the wherewithal within yourself to realize, I got to do something differently. You might not even realize that your previous condition is actually saving you from cancer, like your head injuries, like those things, like those are the things that are changing your terrain to change that trajectory. No, and I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. I hundred percent agree. And I think that, so oftentimes people ask me, well, you know, that must suck that you had six concussions or that must suck that you had an ulcer when you were 24. And actually I'm, and maybe this is a, a, a psychological trick on my own, on myself, but it, it is a, no, I'm actually really happy that that happened because it was small enough that I could get over it. It was big enough to grab my attention to say, wait, wake up, do something because yeah, literally, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> uh, but I, but I think, it, it, and, and that's the other thing it's seeing. So, so I had a, an ulcer when I was 24 stress related. It wasn't drug deficiency related. Like it wasn't your Prilosec deficiency. No, 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 <laughs> no, it wasn't. Um, it was just stress. It was, you know, we all apparently have a little bit of that in our lives. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was the typical, I mean, I was working, I don't know, 16 hour days. I was always trying to be everything to everybody. I, and, and at 24, you all of a sudden you're like, Oh wait, what's that pain? And I ended up actually going to a quack in, in my opinion. And he, he basically says 80, 80 plus year old guy. He smokes, he drinks whiskey. He's while, while he's giving, you know, while you're having your review with him and, uh, and he's asking you loads of questions. Um, loads and loads of questions of, you know, and, and this, and you wake up and you have sweaty feet or you have this or whatever it is, right. He's asking you very particular questions and it's a two, three hour intake. And I thinking that he was a quack, uh, didn't tell him anything about the ulcer. Didn't tell him anything. It's like, you, you don't know anything. You're, you're full of it. So he says, so after the whole intake, he said, okay, well lie down on, on the cot. Um, and he goes straight for it. 
and digs right into it, just pushes right into where the ulcer was. I scream in pain. And he just looks at me and he's like, so are you done? Are you done not telling me? Because that was pretty obvious. So he, I mean, he was, he was an asshole, <laughs> but. And like, <laughs> hungry George Burns grandpa. Like he was like this interesting, like no bullshit kind of yeah, guy. No bullshit. And he looks at me and he's like, okay, so are you going to do what all the doctors tell you? Or do you want to do it right? I was like, he's like, are you, are you going to listen to me? Because I can hear, I can cure that for you, but there, it's going to be a little bit of work. And so for me, what he said was every single morning, Natashek, which is on an empty stomach, he, he said, drink a fresh squeeze, like a glass of fresh squeezed carrot juice every single morning. He said, do that for three months and then come, come talk to me again. Literally a month and a half later, it was gone, completely gone. So for me, it was, I mean, that was, I think, the turning point for me of saying, wait, it's not something about food can heal or something about now, was it annoying? Absolutely. Telling my, or going behind the back of all my colleagues and saying, oh yeah, I'm going to just go to orange Julius or whatever, whatever it was, or how I could get my fresh squeezed carrot juice and doing it on the sly because you're seen as a crazy person to believe that something like something as simple as this could work. Now, is it going to work on all ulcers? Probably not. It didn't work in my case. And a month and a half later, was I completely healed? It didn't have any reverberating effects on any drugs? Yes. I think there is that, you know, when you start having, if you have these little health issues, little in quotations, then, and you can see that food or a lifestyle change can impact that I think is the clincher, which, which really gets people onto this alternative health path and start saying, wait, maybe I'll, maybe the regular standard of care isn't the only path. Maybe it is a path, but it's not the only one that I have to follow. And to me, that's the thing that also is a big change when you are aware that there are other options. So it's not just the one option of I have to go down radiation or down chemotherapy. Uh, it's I have all of these other options and I can check them out. I can talk to other patients who have had stage two cancer and see what they did. And so I think to me, it's by having options, then you start having control and, and feeling empowered to actually choose which option you're going to go rather than again, kind of this outsourcing of health and not taking accountability and responsibility for wait in truth my my health is the only problem the only person who's really going to care about it quite as much as well as much is me because i go to a doctor she or he is going to see me for 20 minutes maybe they're incredible maybe i see them for 3 hours but I have to live with this ulcer or the concussion or cancer or fill in the blank day in, day out. So therefore it behooves me to get pretty selfish about my health and do something about it. But I think, I think to me, the, the, the question that I, I would love selfishly as well is, so I have cancer in my family. I know about it. I, most people, again, we all have cancerous cells that we are growing every day and whether, and I love I, I didn't click until this conversation, by the way, of optimal terrain and how that's your brand. That's your, that, I mean, that's kind of, if you go onto your website, that's what it's called. And it didn't click until how, until this conversation of it is the terrain. It is, it is the soil. It is the water. It is the sun. It is everything about that. And using that metaphor for your health and saying, okay, you have this terrain and your, and, and predisposition to certain diseases or not. 
my question is, knowing what I know, what can I do now to stop myself from going down the path of my mother and my grandmother? Right. Well, first of all, you know, if you listen to people like Dr. Vogelstein over at Harvard, um, he'd tell you you're screwed. He'd say it's just Russian roulette. It's bad luck. You go literally down the hall, the other end of the campus, and you hang out with people like Dr. Peterson, the D, not T, and their center, which says, no, 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 no. This is not a genetic sitting duck, you're screwed Russian roulette game. This is a you're empowered, it's all about your terrain, and it's all about a metabolic process. So we're literally talking the same academic, you know, brilliant monster machine has two completely opposing viewpoints around cancer on the same campus. Reminds me of it, and I'll take a little quick jaunt here, of what happened at the exact same time. <laughs> it's like, history repeats itself in a very interesting way. The time when good old Louis Pasteur was down the hall and, you know, and in the same town, the same community at the same time, there was another scientist and researcher, Beauchamp, who was busily, you know, studying the same things. And somehow, you know, it's like personalities and who can kind of get the, the, the you know, who's kind of got the biggest like balls, I suppose, to kind of, imp 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 you know, impress people to focus their attention on them is really a powerful piece here. And so like Pasteur had kind of a particular political and uh, following and you know, placement in society that what he was talking about was this germ theory, something external of you coming in and you're a victim to it and we have to eradicate it. We have to, we have to treat it, kill it. That's where our whole premise of modern medicine came from this dude's brain. And yet literally in the same town at the same time, a little less politically savvy, a little less boisterous, a little quieter. It's good old Bouchamp was like, no, 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 no. We can actually take like a strep organism and put it into a healthy medium, and that strep goes away. You can then take a beautiful, healthy cell from uh, a, a healthy Petri dish, really, and put it into a toxic sort of cesspool Petri dish and turn that into strep. And he's just started like, huh. I mean, I'm really simplifying this conversation, but basically he was like, what the cell is floating around or what the organism is floating around is what tells it to go rogue or, or stay dormant, stay quiet, right? That was his work. But because the other guy was a little more boisterous and because it was also a bit more profitable to like have, and because people are like, shit, that's a lot of money and time and energy and not a lot of return very quickly on dealing with the Petri dish terrain. And then the other guy's like, here's this one thing that we can target and kill. That was more seductive for the investors as well, not just the investors politically, et cetera. So we've had Pasteur's theory of germ theory predominate in medicine with Bouchon following out of, you know, popularity. That is also what kind of preempted us at the time of um, Otto Warburg and Watson and Crick fame, right? Greg moving into this place where metabolic theory was making these emergence from the 20s into the 40s and then into the 40s and 50s is when Watson and Crick came along and found the DNA helix. And that's where everything was like, boop. <laughs> Nothing to see here on this side of the wall. We're just going to put that down. We're going to put all of our eggs in this basket and focus on this. Fast forward to it's like, here we are again. We got Peterson and we got Vogelstein. 
it is exactly the same. I'm like, we keep coming up against the same thing. And the models that we chose, Pasteur, who on his own deathbed was like, oh, sorry, made a mistake. It's actually the milieu, not the organism, the microbe, you know? But they're like, oh, dead, put a pillow over his face. Don't let that news get out. <laughs> no. Shh, listen. Down exactly. exactly. Otto Warburg winning, you know, Nobel Prize where we're like, shh, shh, going out, focusing there. Clearly the genetic, the genome project, all those things did not pan out as we hoped. So, okay. And now the peterson Vogelstein model, it's like, are these models working that we keep putting our attention to? It's like, God, what a different world it would have been had we listened to Beauchamp, had we listened to Warburg, and had we listened to Peterson all along. And yet here we are. And it's like, again, just like that woman I told you about who chose the same treatment again and again, or the same approach, or the same philosophy, or the same ideology again and then expecting different outcomes. This is what we've been in in the last 150 years, probably last 500 years, you know, or longer, thanks to some of the crazy things that happened when we started burning women at the stake, right? So these are the, the changes we went away of getting away from this vitalistic, intuitive, terrain-centric, like, hey, I recognize that my body responds to the environment in, on, and around me. Hey, I recognize that if I'm in a better state of health, I don't get sick. If I'm taking care of myself, I don't get sick. You know, we are so in it right now as we are literally looking for the cure of COVID in a shot. I can already tell you how this story ends. And this isn't even a pro or an anti-vaccine status. It's like, who is dying of COVID? The people who are dying of COVID. And we'd be like, well, 30 something year olds are dying. Guess what guys? Yes, they are because they're fucking sick. They're so toxic and so broken and so metabolically disabled. They don't even know. They don't know what they don't know because they don't know. So when we see people 36 years old, five years old, dying of COVID, and we're like, oh, no, see, it's, we're all victims. No, let's dig deeper because I could guarantee you're going to find epigenetic hiccups, toxicities, metabolic dysfunction, perfusion issues, high stress environments. I mean, hello, poverty you know, um, poor hygienic conditions, food deserts. There's also the, the, the epigenetics of certain cultures like African-American have much higher t- um, issues with metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, the perfusion issues, you know, and everyone's like trying to make it a racial issue. Like, well, there, there's ele- elements of racial issues in these things and whatnot. But where I live, the socioeconomic depression of the Navajo reservation, highest per capita death rate of COVID right now. This has been a place that researchers have said for decades that they will be, this whole group, the Diné, will be extinct. This was not because of COVID. This is because we have put these people on a reservation where we have polluted all their groundwater with um, gas and oil industry. You look on a map from the satellite and a huge methane cloud hangs over the Four Corners region, which is right over the Navajo Nation. Their animals and their livestock and their agriculture all dies because the water is so polluted. They have to drive 50 to 150 miles just to get fresh water because no one has running water. No one has electricity. And everyone's like, wash your hands for 20 seconds. Can't really do that when you have to drive. So you have to drive into big populated areas to like a place like Walmart because it's what you could afford to bring back home. And because you're so poor and you live out in the middle of nowhere, far from me, you have generations in the household. And because it's a food desert, everyone's living on Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's the only food access there. And non-perishable canned food, crappy processed food items because you don't have refrigeration. And everyone's like, look at the COVID. It's so dangerous. I'm like, the COVID 
is our freaking wake up call. Just like cancer would do it. Clearly that's not enough. They're the same thing. It's like, it's this cesspool of culture of health, how you have access to changing your health, to having access to changing your outcomes. That's what, the, so these environments where we get just pushed further and further and oppressed further and further down, even if they mean well, even if they want that, the accessibility to those things to empower themselves is not there. Like you and I, as by, we're like, you just need to filter your water. You just need to get some good sunshine. You just need to, you know, have access to good organic food. They have none, none of that, none of that. And so it, yeah. Yeah. So whether it's for someone who is of the means to do this and have access, or if you are in an environment like that, that's really suppressed and broken down. I mean, one thing we tried to do years ago was to get a, basically a healthcare bus that we took through and we would go and work. I would go and work on the reservation for years. I went and did medical tents where we would go set up shop. We'd get up in the morning at 5 a.m. There would be hundreds of people in line that I don't know how they found us. So there was no telephones, cell phones, nothing. They would show up and we would do full-on physical exams. We would take blood. We would have a microscope in there to look at some things under the scope. We would be doing treatments. We'd be doing little classes and education. We'd bring seeds to help send them back. to the. We did that for years and we ran out of funding to do that. And it was helping. And every year we'd come back and we'd have more and more people and more and more youth, more and more. Some of these kids... I mean, we actually even got started to get like changing in that environment, right? We've started to see a ripple, but the funding dried up to get us out there to do this and to empower these communities. It takes a lot to do that. And it takes a village to do that. Now within ourselves, when you are of the means and you have these places, this is the time of the concept that I've gotten known for is this concept of test, assess, address, don't guess. Because you allude, it's like, what other 24-year-old would you know who would have gone the route you did with your health? They would have just popped the pill and thought they were normal. So when people come to me and they are diagnosed with cancer, every one of them says, I was healthy until I got cancer. And that's what I'm trying to retrain in people. No, you're not. Just like people went, oh, that 40-year-old died of COVID. I don't understand. Like, give me a minute in their lap. Like, just give me a minute to crawl in there. Or people who are dogmatic about a certain dietary approach, carnivore, carnivore or vegan, it's like, just show me the data. I'm a data person. So the cost of a CBC complete blood count to walk into a, um, unless you live in New York state, you know, to walk into basically a direct con- to consumer lab costs you mm, somewhere between 12 and $20 to have your test run. Just a CBC. I just spent an hour and a half for on the oncology nutrition Institute doing an hour and a half class on just the CBC. I think she sells it on her website for like 40 bucks. It's like, it's well worth it because most of the doctors listen to it and were like, I did not learn that in my lab class. What they learn, what we learn in medical school and labs is like what's lying within the little standard deviation, what's in the middle. I tell you guys right now, your labs are based on the average of the population in the region in which they're being run. So for instance, your glucose in Colorado, the range for you in Colorado is different than the range for you if you had those same tests run in Alabama. Okay. So you've got the bottom of the healthcare, you know, thing in Alabama, they're like number 50. In Colorado, they're always in the top three. 
So glucose range in Alabama is going to say you're not diabetic when your fasting blood sugars are 120, 130. And again, Colorado, they're going to say if it's over 100, you're diabetic, right? Like these are just examples of even systems. You have to get out of that and start to look at functional applications. So a simple test like that right there, and it's funny, just this week, there's been a thing about these are the things we should start screening for COVID people. I'm like, duh, I've been saying this for, since it started to come out because I started watching the literature. But basically, everyone needs to run a CBC. If you have a low white blood cell count below five, something's going on. Something's going on. If it's above seven, something's going on. So with that, if it's low, we can pretty much guess three things are happening. Stress, chronic stress response, okay? Um, heavy metals or other toxicants or chronic viruses. Now, why are those things on board? Well, it could be lifestyle choices, it could be where you live, you don't even know that it's in your groundwater, things like that. You might not even recognize how stressed you always are. It's just become normal for you. You just live in that. Those are the three main drivers of a low white blood cell. Now you can also be in pharmaceuticals. You know, if you're on chemo, of course your white blood cells are going to be low. But those three things, if you're a healthy person going to get your labs run and you see that, you're not healthy. Right there. Just the good old white, white blood cell. The bigger piece that we're looking at over and over and over again now in all mortality is this lovely thing called the neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, which neutrophils and lymphocytes are sub- parts of the white blood cells are like these little subcategories. If you just do nothing and just go and type in NLR or neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio and prognosis, just type that into med, you know, med, med, um, PubMed or just, just for poos and giggles, see what comes up. I'm trying to remember the last time I looked, there's like well over a hundred papers on this, right? <clears throat> if it is two neutrophil percentages to one Neutro, uh, um, lymphocyte percentage or better, meaning a two to one to a one to one ratio, two neutrophils to one lymphocyte or better, you're in a pretty good place. Your immune system's still on track. It's, it's doing its three R's. It's recognizing, responding, and remembering. It's like, yeah, we're, we're, you know, great. I see that. That shouldn't be there. Great. My body knows what to do with it. Great. I remember if I get exposed to it again, I know what to do. But none of us are walking around with normal functioning th three R's anymore, unless you're absolutely actively doing something about it right? Which is where, why are people's immune systems not working and having either underzealous or overzealous responses to things like a virus, novel or not, okay? The other piece is when you start to get more neutrophils, more than two to one, to lymphocytes and the lymphocytes go down, that's all-cause mortality. It doesn't matter if it's cancer, COVID, response to certain therapies, cardiovascular disease, it doesn't matter. It's all incident mortality, and people with a higher NLR, you can pretty much guess their, when they're going to die, almost to the year. Say, say that again. I'm sorry. Incidence of mortality is basically like, what is your likelihood of dying in the next 10 years? You know, things like that. Neutrophil to lymphocyte ratios can give us an accurate prognosis of your higher potential to die of anything, of anything, all mortality rates of all causes is if you have a broken NLR. This is a $12 test. You could easily take a van down, draw these labs on the res and know what people are dealing with right there and educate them just on that. If you have high platelets, that's a, a marker of dehydration, poor perfusion, thick sticky blood, high incidence of, of clotting, also viral patterns, especially if you have high platelets with um, 
you know, any other kind of markers for uh, infection, be they white blood cell issues or NLR issues. So that's a really good monitor as well. Guess what? In the patients with COVID, they had high platelet rate levels because they aggregate their, their cells stick together. They get clumpy. Most people are dehydrated today. So you're already sticky and clumpy as is. And if you're in a place where you don't have access to good water, where you just don't hydrate because you don't like water, you know, or you drink your coffee all day long and then drink your wine all night long, you are dehydrated even worse in these places, which sets you up. Okay. And then if you have things like certain SNPs, like ESR2, which is a SNP about your, how your body responds to estrogen and how estrogen, that's why women who get on birth control pills and whatnot have a higher incidence of blood clots. Uh, and, and we sit there and go like, well, why some and not others? Well, if you look at their epigenetics, you can pretty much guess who's going to clot out on these things, right? If you've got PCOS, you have a higher incidence of having a blood clot. If you've got PCOS, what do we like to do in Western medicine? We like to put them on birth control pills or the NuvaRing. And then that, like, we like to then kill them straight out with that, which I lost one of my, um, one of the people I took care of as a child. I was her babysitter and later her doctor. And she was a big, high pollutant, you know, DC page working in on, you know, she was on McCain's presidential campaign at one time. And she had big aspirations. This kid was going to be a hardcore politician. And it was too hard to keep, maintain the diet and the lifestyle required to deal with her polycystic ovarian syndrome. So instead of doing all the things she was doing that kept it at bay for such a long time, she listened to her standard of care physician who said, you know, it'll all go away if we put you on a statin, if we get you on metformin and we put you on the NuvaRing. So they're like, here's the three drug cocktail we're going to give to PCOS patients. And her parents had to fly to DC several years ago and unplug life support on her as she died. And while she was in the ER and the parents showed up, her, the doctor asked the parents, do you know if she's on the NuvaRing? Asked her ask them in the hospital. And they're like, no, they had no idea because we'd already talked about the risk factors. She and I, we'd sat there in the room with her mother and her grandmother and her talking about why she doesn't ever get on birth control pills. But she listened to her physician in DC who was like, no, don't make it hard on yourself. You don't have to quit alcohol. You don't have to worry about all those late night dinners, carb loading dinners you're doing. Don't change any of that. Here, just put these on the on board and do your thing. So do, we don't want to get away of your, in the way of your political career. This kiddo died of blood clots thanks to NuvaRing. And unfortunately, thousands of other women have done the same. And her family and their family, many other families came together. There's a documentary, so I was sharing with you recently, is coming out on this thing. And Erica, um, you know, there's a whole website, uh, America, with her name, E-R-I-K-A dot com. Um, freedom, freedom, uh, I'm, I remember, it's in my book, but I talk about it and we've talked about it, so I can get you the link here. But basically, this kid died of trying to simplify and do it the easy way. Because when you're 20-something, when you're 24, 25 years old, you're immortal. You have the whole world. Thinking preventatively and pro prophylactically is not in our bandwidth. We're still developing our brain, our cognitive functioning, our critical thinking skills until our brain's about 27 years old, right? So we don't even have, like our frontal lobe is not fully developed to make good decisions for ourselves. I'm like, I think no one should get married, have children, make a career choice, nothing before the age of 28. Can we just make that like a rule? Think of all Exactly. Seriously, don't. 
family, you know, and, and the story gets even sadder because the mother was up against the system. She saw She brought on people like Kelly Brogan. She brought on all the people like fighting with, she, she made it on um, Ricky Lake, all these folks like passionate about changes, all the parents she met along the way. They had a huge class action lawsuit against Merck. They were attacked attacked over and over again as just looking for money, despite the fact that the settlements they kept, they were offered, every family was offered like $10 million a family to shut the fuck up. They all said, no, they're like, we're not interested in the money. We're interested in this not happening to other people's daughters. And when they threw the case out, that toppled Karen. I was one of 25, 26 people who received a care package on the very day that I also received a call from her husband that she took her life. And she had chosen a handful of us and knew she had very much calculated this, even went to a hotel to do this, very specific, very clear of, I can't carry this forward anymore, but I need you to. You know, and so these are the things that we don't have to have the Erica's and this woman I just told you about earlier and all these, we don't have, it doesn't, the story does not have to end this way for us. So simple things like a simple blood test of a, of a CBC can tell you so much right away if you were healthy or not. If you have low white blood cells and you have a poor MLR, you are not healthy, period. Do something about it, explore why, and then change it. If you have chronic, like if you take a pharmaceutical for any reason, that means you are not healthy, <laughs> This is what's so weird is I'll have people come in like, I'm healthy, and I look at their prescription list. I'm like, how does it not occur to you that you were put on an antidepressant at 18 years old and on a blood pressure medication at 26 years old and on a lipid medication in thirties. And you're telling me you're surprised that you have cancer right now. That's what's weirder to me. That's where I'm like, I worry about the mental health of our world and our country. It's like the fact we are so deeply disconnected, disembodied, disempowered, trusting in a system that really has nothing about us in, in its mind. It's like, wow. So when you can start to take a look at the simplest thing of a simple neutrophil lymphocyte ratio and a white blood cell count can tell you so much. And if you have, for instance, your MCD, MCH, MCHC are elevated, so above 90 on those, um, you start to look at patterns of methylation hiccups. Okay, so that starts to infer those labs tell us basically your B12 status. Guess what? A serum B12, don't even bother. Please don't even waste your time. I mean, if you want to just infer information, great, but it is so erroneous, like a glucose level. They mean nothing. They're very transient. They don't tell you anything. If you want to actually look at your metabolic health, you have to look at an insulin and a hemoglobin A1C fasting, which is the average of your blood sugar over three months and a measurement of basically how quickly you're resting in your tissues, right? So those things, like I want vitamin D3, anybody with, like we're now seeing, we have NCI, which is a, you know, the National Center um, or a, um, NIH, which is National Institute of Health has an entire vitamin C count, or vitamin D council for crying out loud. And they're starting to say, if you optimize, and their idea of optimization is having your vitamin D levels above 30. Now, that's like, that's like just taking enough vitamin C to prevent scurvy, right? That, the, the, this is not therapeutic. This is just trying not to get, you know, the bait, like rickets, like just enough to prevent this. And like one of the things, like here's, here's a freebie. People don't even have the money for that. Let's like just, just rub the back of your arm 
everyone right now, take a moment, rub the back of your arm. Should smooth as butter. But if it's got those little bumpies, you are vitamin A deficient. All those little chicken arms, okay? Or take a look at your heels right now. And this does not count for those who are like getting out or getting them buffed and taking care of it. Just normally look at your heels. If you have cracks in your heels, you have essential acid, essential fatty acid deficiency. Look at your fingernails. Do you see any white spots? There's your zinc deficiency. Okay. If you see really poor, like you don't have moons on, um, on eight of your 10 fingers or more. So you have eight to 10 of your fingers having little moons and those moons are those little things at the base of your thing. If you're missing your moons on more than two fingers of the 10, something's really wrong with your system. Like you are really degraded. <laughs> um, it's like often it's about circulation perfusion. So people can also pull their skin. If it holds up here, that's called turgor. If that holds, it's if it's sticky or dehydrated. Okay. These are just like some examples. If you're not having a bowel movement at least once a day, preferably every time you eat, you should be like your dog, like follow their, their thing. You eat, it triggers, response, you poop. That should be in all of us. If that's not happening, you're likely magnesium deficient. You're likely under high stress because you don't shit when you're running from a bear, like things like that. You know, that's a really interesting one because I think we, so one, that was one of the tests. So we were writing a, a, an ebook about testing and, and the first thing was, what are the free tests? that we can do. And interestingly enough, bowel movements is one that I brought out in part because in Ayurveda, when I was apprenticing in an Ayurvedic hospital, we made sure to look for that. Also, when you're in a hospital, in a regular hospital, oftentimes your doctor will say, what is your bowel movement? When was your last bowel movement? How was it? So it's, it is very indicative. And yet, and yet if you go onto many of these, these kind of medical online forums or, um, yeah, medical online forums, you'll find that they say, oh, well, it just needs to be between once a day and th- once every three days. Like, where is, I, where is that fine? You know, may, maybe there are those outliers of people where they, they have that, but we are going for optimal. We are going for how can you feel the best? Same thing. If you wake up in the morning and you cannot get out of bed, and you need that cup of coffee in order to kickstart you because you literally for the first two hours of your day are a zombie. That's the problem. And that's, it's, I feel like there's so many of these little tests, which seem to be very obvious. And yet we are, we've been programmed or for some reason, we just think that it's normal because everybody else struggles with waking up in the morning. Like we've now normalized things that Common? Exactly. Things like, do you breeze, bruise easily? Um, do you have any pooling in your feet? Do you get lymphedema? Do you get swelling in your feet at the end of the day? Do you have sock marks? Um, when you bend down and then stand back up, do you feel like you're going to pass out? These are like clues of perfusion, circulation. When you're standing back up and you're dizzy, that's an adrenal dysfunction issue. Um, when, you know, we would do like a simple flash of light, you know, holding the light in a dark room and put it to the pupil, depending how the pupil responds. If it just goes, and just like stays open and nothing happens. You're like, oh, your adrenals are kind of screwed, you know, but it should go for with like a nice little flow. If it's too fast, it's hyper. If it's too like and just stays open or non-responsive, that's a problem. There's some neurological damage. Same thing with, with um, reflexes. Yeah. When we would take, so we'd go to the res, we would take our little things. We would do like the eye thing. We would do the um, check the Achilles reflex. Do you know how we used to test for thyroid disorders in the, before blood tests? with an Achilles reflex hammer. 
So an Achilles reflex should just go burp, burp, right? Should ratchet. But if it goes, dip, 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 um, that's hypothyroid. Or if it doesn't, yep, it doesn't go at all. It doesn't, you know, you're dead. If it goes burp, burp, like really brisk, that's a hyperthyroid place. Right? Little simple things like that. Same thing, you get the brachioradialis, uh, you know, reflex, reflex, you get the knee reflex. Those are like, how are, how are things communicating in your system? That's the little guy here that's like, um, it, it runs across, it's like a tender spot usually if you rub below that. Actually, a Chi- and Chinese medicine has large intestine meridian as well. So there's kind of that piece, but it's also a really good one that also just shows like neural pathways to the, to, to the limbs there. Um, perfusion, like just squeezing on the finger, seeing how quickly the capillary fill happens. So those are important ones. Looking at your tongue. I go white and then you let go and it fills right back up to pink. But if it stays white or, or it doesn't pink, it's like circulation off. And people tell me like, oh, my finger like renodes. Everyone's like, oh, I have renodes. Like that's an autoimmune disease. That's not a symptom. That's a disease. <laughs> you know, it's like, Mm. we've like normalized that we've normalized like for instance one of your questions for me today was like endocannabinoid system issues endorphin system issues symptoms of people with poor endocannabinoid and endorphin tone are ibs migraines depression like many people are not walking around with those things is my question so we've spent the last how many decades terrified of fat for instance, that's why people look at the back of their arms. That's a fat, fat-soluble vitamin. Um, we look at their heels. That's omega-3 fatty acid issues. If you see those problems, if you have omega fatty acid issues, omega-3 fatty acid issues, you have a poor tone endocannabinoid system. All these people like filling their bodies up with CBD and THC and like, I'm just going to dream it because that's the soup du jour. If you do not have a proper balance of omega-3 to 6 ratio, those medications either A, won't work at all, or will actually aggravate you. And then, yeah, it's all, most of our foods that, so the foods that are aromatic in our herb family, so these are terpenoids, okay? So things that smell good, like your pestos, you know, your basil, your mint family, your pepper family, your rosemary family, all of those have natural occurring um, can't, um, endocannabinoids in them, or, you know, like they're, 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 they're landing on that endogenous receptor site within you. So they're in that family. In fact, what gives the smell profile to those plant medicines, to the cannabis medicine, are the same terpenes that you find in most medicinal and culinary herbs. How stinking cool is that? Again, we co-evolved with this endogenous receptor site that's like, cool, I'm going to go eat this to create this. And those terpenoids are so powerful. They have very specific indications. So everyone kind of got stuck in like sativa versus indica, you know, working on the CB1 or the CB2 receptor sites. And that we're like, this one's more peripheral and this one's more central nervous system. Well, we've learned thanks to people like Ethan Russo and others um, out there that Mm, that's too simplified. You know, we've only known about the endocannabinoid system since the 80s, thanks to Ethan Russo, who I just, yeah, I'm a little fangirl with him. What we've now, what he actually has recoined the term is chemovars. So sort of these chemical variations that are what we're really finding the medicinal components of all of our 
herbal medicines, which by the way, imprint on 80% of our pharmaceuticals out there today, came from some type of an herbal form. Hello, all the witches that were burned back in the 1550s. We'll just take all your information down the road and like burn you at the stake in the interim. But but these guys start realizing like, wow, when you add pepper to this, that's very anti-pain. If you add, you know, um, mint to this, that's very uplifting. You know, if you add citrus, it's very good for the brain. Like they started to see these patterns that, you know, that in, instead of just being sativa or indica, we kind of always said, oh, that's a body high and that's a mental high. We are all different. Our endocannabinoid systems are also very individually wired. And also then based on our diet, if you have a low fat diet, you have a broken endocannabinoid system in general, because you don't have anything for those receptors to sort of bounce off of, to land on. Yes, yes, fully, fully. Mm-hmm. Low fat diets, glyphosate, because it's dismantling all the gut itself and it's also uh, an in, uh, endocrine disruptor. So it's messing with your hormones. Glyphosate, by the way, sequestered in your grains and legume family, in your soil, your water, and your, even if it's organic, it's in there, right? Like you find me one that's testing negative for it. Now they have EPA, like allowable values in your organic food. And they're like, it's fine. They call it, they can label it glyphosate free. There is no such thing as glyphosate free on the planet anymore today. And just for everybody to know the grains and legumes are what sequester. It's just the nature of the beast. Thanks to people like Dr. Huber at Purdue and Stephanie Seneff and others are like, they've been showing this for a long time. So what happens with glyphosate is that it, it basically, they call it, they called it the AIDS creator of the soil. Well, it's doing. Yeah. 1971. Yeah, yeah, nice. Ripener. So it helps ripen all the crops at once. It was used initially as a weed killer. And then they're like, hey, cool, everything ripens at the same time. So we also started in, we also started to uh, falsely ripen crops. So if like having, I mean, you know the difference of like a vine ripe tomato versus one that's in sprayed to make it look red? They're not the same animal. They don't taste the same. They don't look the same. They don't feel the same. That's what we've done to our grains our legume, same thing. We're like, let's just ripen everything for industry yet again. But basically those types of chemicals are wiping out our gut. They're wiping out our minerals. They're wiping out our um, B vitamins. Or, so our methylators are wiping out our detoxifying nutrients. They're wiping out our fat soluble vitamins. So those are those types of things. So if people are still eating diets high in, in um, grains and legumes, even organic, they're likely high in glyphosate. I test everyone. So I know that that's just the case. I bet And my vegetarian wine drinkers are the worst. Like they have the highest rates of anybody, unless I've got families just living on McDonald's. They're pretty off the charts too, but yeah. And little kids on Cheerios. Yeah. There's a few. So Great Plains Laboratory offers offers one. There's one on my wet, um, gosh, it starts with an H. That'd be crazy. Oh. I'll bring that into you later. Another one's called Detox Project. And so you've got options of blood and urine testing on this. But the good thing is it's, it is water soluble. So if you just remove it and then you basically hydrate and flush it out and do some saunas, you can push it out. And also the thing that degrades glyphosate in your body, this also should 
Lue and other microbiome pieces is sauerkraut juice. That's, that's actually what they started pouring on crops to start to break this down, the residues down in, in mitigating soil, you know, in regenerative ag. So I started getting really involved with the regenerative agriculture world in the last few years, and they have me come in and speak. So it's like so funny to have this like cancer expert coming in speaking to a bunch of farmers and ranchers, but they get it because their whole job is to res, res, like bring back the terrain, fill the soil. So when I talk, I'm not sounding foreign to them. They get me. They're my people. They're my tribe. So the people who understand what I'm saying the most are these like old farmers and overalls and all the, like my husband, we always joke that I'm a really big deal among the Amish these days. So um, <laughs> I've got a huge Amish following because they only, they're avid readers. So they read my interviews. They read my stuff in, in Regen Farming magazines. They read my book because they don't get online. They're not social media people. They're not in this place. So when I went to this conference to speak the first time, I'd never known of this group. I show up thinking I'm going to be talking to like a room of 30 people. And I see them opening up the doors and bringing in more chairs. I'm like, what's happening? Like, oh, they're, we're getting ready for the speaker. I'm like, well, who's the speaker? I'm looking out the door to see if I'm in the right place. And I'm like, well, how many people are here? They go, well, we're expecting over 750 people. And I had to go throw up because I'm terribly petrified of public speaking and then come back in. And when I came back in about 20 minutes later, the room is full. Majority of the people are like extreme, like the whole Amish thing going on. And I'm like, what is happening? And then of course I can't take a picture because they won't let you photograph them. And I'm like, no one is going to believe me with this. No one is going to believe me with this. I mean, I like call myself like, He's like this cracking up. So it's like these funny things, but there's like this passion because they're getting squished in more and more everything around them because all of their farming practice, all things they've been doing all these years, these little, these, all the sprayers and all the big capo farms and all the big, you know, giant, you know, farming machines around them. Glyphosate and all those chemicals don't read signs. They go, oh, we can't float over into this one because that says organic. It doesn't, <laughs> two miles by air, water, and soil. And then the more clay you have in the soil, the longer that residue sticks around. So in really high clay soil environments, you're going to have glyphosate in the soil for up to 20 years. Really sandy, it can kind of move through quicker. That's where you start getting the people like the, the soil regenerative people and the people making their little compost teas and the little mycorrhiza, you know, my husband is like always in the backyard here. My sister-in-law's had dirt in her backyard here. Nothing. It was dirt, not even soil, just nothing grew in it. It was awful. Last year started spraying it down with sauerkraut juice, a compost tea and mycorrhiza from Paul Stamets. Her yard this year is incredible. Plus a bunch of really cool little mushrooms popping up everywhere. It's like a jungle in her backyard now. She's like, I've lived here seven years and I've never had a yard. Didn't even know it was possible. So we can really restore that on our land, which shows us how we can restore this within ourselves. So I always tell people, if you want to hear more on this topic, go listen to people like Zach Bush, you know, who started, uh, used to be Restore, it's now Ion Biome and all those pieces. But here's a medical doctor who saw the deep connection of our soil of our land to the soil within us. And, and I really resonate with his message and what he shares out there. And a very, like, he really speaks to a very, feminine, matriarchal kind of way of thinking and healing in this world. And it's really refreshing to have a male, not guest, test, assess, address, take like in the front of the book, another free thing. I'm willing to share the, the questionnaire for free with your listeners of ten, the 10 questions, you know, like the 10 questions for the 10 terrain issues that seem to have an impact on your health. People are always surprised. When I get through that, 
you know, people with cancer, people without cancer, family members of people with cancer, they take like, I was shocked at how many yeses I had on this one particular section. And I tell people, start with that section, the one that had the most yeses, start there. Like, let's say it's microbiome. Great. Go read the microbiome chapter and just dig in start doing things right there. Any tiny step helps. Any tiny step helps. So wherever you need to start is what's going to happen because we're like a giant tapestry. And if you tug on one thread, you impact the whole. So it's not like you have to do everything overnight. And the things I've learned over almost 30 years did not happen overnight. Oh my gosh, the, that's what I was saying on your, on your, the group. It's like the diet changes and things I've tried alone, I could write textbooks on, you know, what I've learned from myself as well as what I've seen in other patients in this. And these are the things that are so powerful is that there are no, like you take 10 women with breast cancer, the same age, the same demographic, the same breast cancer type and stage. And you'd start to dig under, you start to look under the hood and you start to test and assess what's going on. And all 10 of them will have a different reason why they landed in that side, which also means all 10 of them will need a different roadmap to get the hell out of that place and change it and change their outcomes. And this is hard is the world is protocolized, right? Even integrative therapy, protocol, everyone's got a protocol. It fails every time because we're not a protocol. We're not, and it, you know, we are N equals one out the wazoo. It's so funny on this journey of, like I've told, you know, you before, it's like all these different things I've tried, the common denominator of a great anti-cancer, anti-chronic illness diet is one about the creation of metabolic flexibility. Okay. So like, and we'll dive, we'll unpack that one a little bit here in a moment, but you know, local, clean, preferably organic, which is so weird. You have to go out of the way to eat what your grandparents and great grandparents ate normally for millennia. Um, But all of those things being basically a omnivore based diet, meaning that we all have different macronutrient needs at different times in our life cycle our health cycle and our treatment cycle that may need to vary specifically to a certain situation at a different time. So what I tell people all the time is that dogma kills, right? That's, that's definitely taken more lives um, than any standard of care cancer treatment I've personally seen when I'm like seeing people just hold tight and dig, you know, dig their heels in and trench in even deeper in certain ideologies based on experience. But I like to test and get the metrics behind it is that we've become increasingly metabolically inflexible since we started the industrial food revolution and started milling sugar and flour and putting it into everything after 1850. All right. And even people like Weston A. Price and Dr. Pottinger started sounding the alarm in the 1870s and into the early 1900s saying, problem, danger here. And it's so much worse now. It's so much worse now. So that being said is there, there was a time, you know, in Westernized realms, we had, we were all low carb, like in the Westernized environments, like meaning that 30% of our caloric intake, 30, 40% was carbohydrates. And we had to work very hard for them and go, you know, be very physical to put out a lot of energy just to get them in. And so we were very predominantly a, a more fat and protein and seasonal. We'd have definitely more bounty in the summer months and we'd have more, you know, uh, less of that in the winter months. And we would naturally ebb and flow into these places. That's where we had this like dual engine that's within us that came with a 
you know, the manual of, of who we are as human beings that was like, oh, you're a hybrid. You're like a little Prius. You should at, at will, at need, whenever it's available or not available, move into either energy source of burning fat or carbohydrates, what's around you or not around you, right? But we end up kind of somewhere after 1850, just kind of put this brick on the accelerator pedal with just sugar as the burning, as the carbohydrates as the main fuel source in the burn. In a matter of a few generations, our bodies have forgotten how to be a Prius. And now they're just like a revved Ferrari, you know, like up on blocks with a brick on the accelerator pedal. And we're not, you know, we have the potential to go really far and fast, but we're puttering, sputtering out pretty quickly. So that's the place where also at the time, like in the 1940s, when Dr. Gerson, the original Father Gerson, came along, whose work I was also inspired by because I ran across that in my readings early on in my diagnosis in the 90s, he was helping people restore a metabolic broken system, okay, by basically going, wow, we are really all having way too much processed salt. This is the time we started making Morton salt that's really only good for melting slugs and maybe ice on your sidewalk and really should not be ingested milled bleached iodized with really shit toxic iodine it's just like fluoride thrown into the water source iodine thrown in just as bad please don't ever take that stuff so bad he started saying wow we're really now got this sodium chloride excess and this potassium deficiency and this was also coming on the heels after the great depression and the great dust bowl and starting to move into uh fertilization you know fertilizer added to our our sources where we started to pull minerals out of the soil and we started getting more and more excess of certain things and less of others. And he's like, wow, this potassium sodium ratio is really off. So we really pushed people on high potassium, low sodium. He started also recognizing too much sugar. So he pulled that out. He said, oh, people are very acidotic and they're really predominantly eating too much meat at that time. You know, he was ahead of his time, but he also, what daughter Gerson and what the Gerson therapy is known as today it's like she probably got traumatized by having to eat liver growing up, but that's my theory. And I, and this woman is divine, right? I studied with her. I studied, I did an internship. I got my certification in Gerson therapy back in the nineties. I, you know, all those pieces, but I think she was traumatized and was like, I'm not going to do another juiced parsley or celery or cucumber ever again. I just want to live on carrot juice and apple juice because that tastes good and it's pleasing. And I'm never going to ever put anybody through liver. Well, basically when she got rid of all of those things, she got rid of what worked with Gerson therapy, right? So Father Gerson recognized that we became minerally imbalanced and over-carbohydrated and too much protein, the mTOR piece, which he, nobody knew about mTOR then. And he also recognized that, that you still need the cofactors big time, the fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin A, D, K, B12, magnesium, selenium, zinc. Guess what that was really rich in? Raw liver. He had patients eating raw liver several times a week. That was part of it. Juiced liver too. Good Lord. His therapy was successful because of those cofactors and a juiced green diet and coffee enemas to help dilate the vas vasodilate the portal vein to dump and clear the toxins that we're suddenly becoming exposed to. Because at that time, this was only a generation or two into a really bad failed industrial food revolution experiment. We were not as sick in the 1940s when his work came along, in the 50s when his work came along, when you could actually move the, the needle on the dial a little more readily with homeopathy and nature cure and Dr. Gerson's work, because we were not as cumulatively sick as we are today. All right. Fast forward, by 1971, we started experimenting with glyphosate. By 1996, it's in everything. You know, 
the World Health Organization comes out just a few years ago saying if you're born after 1980, you're not going to outlive your parents. We are the United States survival rates are dropping. The only country in the world whose survival rates are dropping annually for the last three years, thanks to two things. Despair is the driver of both, but suicide and opiates are what are changing our place. And I have to think that despair is coming from our broken gut, which is where we store the majority of our neurochemicals to make us feel good. So serotonin and dopamine, uh, the broken down hormonal milieu communication of our cells, ability to connect in another, the complete disruption of oxytocin and human connection. And we're all just hiding behind screens and not with each other, which is worsening right now. Death rates, suicide rates. My own town of Durango, Colorado is a beautiful little place. It's one of the highest suicide rates in the whole world. And it's really exploding right now. Thanks to COVID. There's been so many suicides just in the last few weeks. It's just terrible. No one's talking about these things, you know? It's like, these are the things that we have collectively gotten so far away from source, from what we were intended to do, from the rhythm and flow and balance of nature. And yet, when we look at how we can restore that, we restore that through what can we do most tangible first? We go through food. We can start to restore that metabolic flexibility of which less than 12% of Americans are shown to have. And that's likely true for the whole world, but that's the studies in out of the U.S. coming out. And so that's when we start to go back to, okay, well, you can achieve metabolic flexibility. There are multiple roads to run. So when people are up there like, oh, eating a ketogenic diet, that can really fuel a few cancer sources. Guess what? When you're metabolically flexible and you stop dinner at 6 p.m. and you don't eat again until 7 a.m., if you are metabolically flexible, you should be showing some trace ketones. That's fucking normal. That's how it should be. That's what drives me crazy. And when you say metabolic flexibility, what is your definition of that? That's where you can easily move in and out of whatever energy source you need at any time. Food available, not available, and not feeling weird if one of them is missing. So like today, a sign of metabolic flexibility is if you can't go more than four hours without a meal. If you have to have a snack before you go to bed. If you cannot easily fast from dinner to breakfast for 13 hours. If you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, diabetes, pre-diabetes, which is hilarious that we even have something called that. If you have family history of pancreatic cancer, PCOS, diabetes, pre-diabetes, gestational diabetes, you are not metabolically flexible, right? That's part of the deal. If you get hangry, if you get shaky, if you always say, oh, I have reactive hypoglycemia. Well, you having that means that your sugars go, bum, bum. There's, that's not flexibility. That's yo-yo. That's cray-cray, right? That's bipolar. A lot of people think bipolar is actually blood sugar irregularities or Hashimoto's gets mis, you know, bipolar gets misdiagnosed when it's actually Hashimoto's. High thyroid, low thyroid, high thyroid, low thyroid, just like high blood sugar, low blood sugar. We are putting people on medications for conditions that are likely more related to their blood sugar or their endocrine system being thrown off kilter. Like these are fascinating to me. This is fascinating. And, and how, so how does one, when they realize, okay, you know what? I cannot go to bed without a snack. What do I do now? How do I start changing that flexibility? So what you start doing is you start to pull back. So you start to, you get something like chronometer or my fitness pal, you can get the free version. So you don't have to spend money. Okay. You start to put in your food just to get a sense because everyone thinks they eat no sugar. I love my patients who come in and they're like, look, by breakfast, you've had three days of sugar. You know, thanks to your ADA recommended breakfast of your Cheerios, 
glyphosate drenched Cheerios with your low fat skim milk, which is only sugar. That's all that's left behind is sugar and lots of growth hormone (laughs) with your whole grain toast because you need to get that nine servings of grains in a day. Another little glyphosate insulin growth factor bomb with your raisins or bananas on top of your cut up cereal and your cup of coffee with your whatever false creamer of choice you're putting into it with God knows how much amount of sugar on top of that. That's three days, four days of sugar for most people, right? So those are the types of things. So I start to tell people, you start to know what you're actually eating. Test, assess, address, don't guess. So take a look at it. Don't, don't take my word for it and start to realize, yeah, because even our denutritionists, which you've now qualified or the people based like just enough to keep you from getting scurvy, you know, not therapeutic, but our denutritionists tell the human race that we should not be eating more than 100 grams of carbohydrate a day in total. And that men should not be eating more than 25 grams of sugar broken down from that net carb and women no more than 20 grams of sugar. 100% of you are eating 100 grams of sugar a day unless you are knowingly, actively not doing that. 100% of you. I've not yet met a person who just naturally gravitated to a normal carbohydrate intake diet. You have to work so hard for it today because it's hidden in everything. We're shocked by that. So really good example. It's like, for cancer, what we're finding is we need to push the pendulum pretty hard to get to the other side. So if you've been, let's say you were vegan forever and you're now are diagnosed with cancer, staying more vegan is not going to help you. You have to shake it up. It's like, you need that hormetic stress to be like, I'm going to do something a little bit different. You know, some people might go all the way to the carnivore or paleo or keto or whatever. It doesn't matter. Like shake up, just try and break that entropy you know, that's been created there in whatever way. Fasting is the oldest since the beginning of time. Fasting has been hard, part of human existence, spiritual existence. Every, you know, every spiritual practice outside of what we do in the United States now is like got some form of fasting into the mix. When we give all the credit to blue zones and we say it's all the Mediterranean diet, what is actually overlooked in the data is that the areas that they study are also Greek Orthodox Christian And by design, in their spiritual practice, they fast up to 200 days a year. So actually, what's probably more powerful is what they're not eating and when they're not eating it. And that's what the science is showing is we've kind of been like, oh, you must eat a high fat, low carb diet, or you must eat just carnivore, or you just have to go low carb. The thing is, is actually probably when we eat is probably even more important. And that's what the research is showing, like our impact on circadian rhythm, apoptosis, autophagy, breaking down of things in the body. So what we're finding is again, today, we all can graze 24 seven. We can eat a papaya in the dead of winter in Durango, Colorado. You know, like these are things that's available to you constantly. And you've got all that light coming in constantly. Like you're, you're not in rhythm and sync of what's around you. And so what a lot of people find, like, like even the MD Anderson study that came out several years ago, showing that women who they looked at a whole bunch of women who'd had breast cancer, and then they looked at their recurrence rates over time. And those who fasted 13 hours or more a day had a 70% reduction in recurrence than those who ate basically ad libum, right? And the irony of that is they never even asked what they ate. They could have been eating donuts, all day, all night, until they have that 13 plus hour fast between dinner and breakfast. So that's, that's fascinating because it's, it, go, it goes against 
what people say is sugar, you know, cut out all sugars for cancer because that's impacting your, your terrain. But maybe it is that it's, it's also the time of day and whether you give your body a break. Exactly. And that's where I think when you get strategic of utilizing, you know, like, okay, how we have, so people like Dr. Walter Longo wrote the longevity code and some of these other books, you know, this guy, like in the beginning, he was kind of in the keto camp and in that world, he spoke at all those conferences. And now he's kind of in the vegan camp and kind of pushing that. I'm like, dude, what you really are is just the metabolic flexibility camp. Don't eat at certain times camp. Please. Could you just say that and stop getting politicized and basically, frankly paid to be put into these other camps. So here's a guy, when I first heard him talking, I loved his work. I'm just going to be harsh again on, on men being bought out. I can't help it, but it pisses me off. When I see him getting up there saying, probably the reason why chemo even works for most, you know, because really it's only overall, you put all cancers into one bucket and you're going to have anywhere from two to a 3% response rate overall. And yet this is standard of care, two to 3% response rate. Okay. All tumor types across the board in one bucket, certain, maybe testicular, maybe certain leukemias, lymphoma is a bit better, but you put them all in a bucket, that's it. And that's where we put all of our investment, all of our time. You put radiation in that group, maybe up to a 12% response rate, all tumor types. You put surgery as an option to that group, maybe up to a 50% response rate. And when I say response, I use that word very specifically. That does not mean cure. That means on a scan, a reduction of the tumor size is a response. That's it. Doesn't even mean remission, just response. So we are putting all of our eggs in a basket of a 312, 50% option, right? Isn't that weird? And we are, are not even considering the fact that, guess what? If you have high insulin levels, radiation doesn't work at all. It's just like you took 12% just threw that out the window because cancer cells are desensitized by sugar, to radiation by sugar. Sugar desensitizes the cancer cells to, to radiation and insulin, right? So there's that. And remember, radiation is still working up to six months to a year after treatment. So suddenly if someone's like, well, I did keto all through, or I fasted all through my radiation, but now the next six to 12 months after they're like back on their sugar wagon again, they've just negated all of that. And when you have insulin on board with radiation, you make the radiation more damaging, causing more DNA damage, which is a known cause of cancer. (laughs) You know, it's like, we know things like CIRMs, aromatase inhibitors and CIRMs like the tamoxifen family, they cause diabetes. The three drivers of breast cancer are low vitamin D3, elevated insulin, insulin growth factor, and a body fat composition above 25%. So that's even true for all the tofies out there. Then on the outside, fat on the, you know, then on the outside, fat on the inside people who look totally normal in their body, but you do a little deeper dive on a body impedance test and realize, hmm, you're skinny, but 40% of you is like a big fat. You're like a giant, you know, fat bomb. People don't recognize that. And yet we put them on drugs for breast cancer that causes fatty liver, diabetes, problems with bone and circulation and so cardiovascular events, rapid aging of your mitochondria, glycolated in products out the wazoo, rusting you from the inside. So all these women talk about how they age so quickly on these drugs. And then they're all surprised when 70% of them will have a recurrence at some point in their thing, which is based on American Cancer Society statistics. Like, I'm the quack, you know, it just drives me crazy. And I'm not, every single thing I'm saying to you is not like, I'm not making these things up. And back to what Dr. Longo said, the first time I heard him speak, he's like, you know, maybe the actual benefit of chemotherapy is that people are so bloody sick, they can't eat. I hear that all the time from patients. 
And that really the impact they were getting was fasting. Now, that's why his work led him down that path, asking that question, which led to what's now known as the Longo protocol of fasting around chemo, which is, let's say your chemo is at 10 a.m. on Thursday morning. You finish your last meal at you know dinner on Monday night, and you fast all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday before, all day th- Thursday of, and all day Friday, and break dinner, break fast on Saturday evening. That's a five-day fast around chemo. And what they found is the patients did not need the pre-drugs, the nausea meds, the whole bit. They had better tumor reduction. All of his literature, he's got multiple studies. These are done all over eight different universities around the world, like multiple studies showing this. And he would told, told us in this group that you know, the best thing to do is just a water fast. But a lot of people are, they're terrified. Their con- conventional doctors have told them, don't, whatever you do, don't lose weight. He even shows in the study that the people who lose weight during that five-day fast will normalize faster than those who don't fast during chemo. Because what kills you in cancer most of the time is cachexia, which is metabolic wasting syndrome, which is never responsive to more calories. It's, it won't respond to calories. It's a whole metabolic mismatch that's happening here. In fact, just yesterday, uh, Dr. D'Agostino's group out of Southern Florida just posted a paper. They've had this, and I've been telling them, I mean, funny thing is they've now paid for the research and have the data, but I've been doing it with patients for 20 plus years, is that ketones prevent cachexia. So it's actually better for my patients to be completely fasting or eating a high-fat, low-carb diet, or in certain situations, bringing on exogenous ketones to enhance therapeutic outcomes with things like chemotherapy. Um, radiation, and basically keeping them off of carbs altogether, you know, very, very low carbs. So below my cancer patients, I want them well under 50 and certain tumor types. I want it well under 20 and even some under five. There's brain involvement and seizure involvement. I want them under five grams of sugar a day, um, less than 50 grams total carbohydrates a day, but they actually work better less than 20 grams total carbohydrate a day. But there are certain tumor types that Um, And then again, like I said before, you can achieve ketosis just by being normal. So when people start to say, well, ketones can feed, okay, that's where, that's where you start to make me angry because they're looking at a Petri dish where they're flooding a fake environment that does not have a liver involved. It does not have all these things around them saying, look, this cell line is driven like BRAF, right? Everyone got freaked out by the BRAF 6700 epigenetic hiccup. Do you know how many BRAF patients I've treated with, with melanoma over my career with uh, successfully with a ketogenic diet that are still alive to tell about it and are still living well beyond the rest of the people in their clinical trials at MD Anderson and Sloan Kettering, all the big immunology therapy places that were fully on a full more ketogenic diet? Like I want, I want those patients to speak to the researchers out there telling patients to be terrified of a BRAF mutation with ketones. I'm like, I've never seen it clinically have that outcome. Never. Right. Um, do you get do you get people asking whether they should do a ketogenic diet or fasting if they have an impacted thyroid? Yeah, I do get that question, which I can't remember which one of the of the uh, influencers out there loaded that bullshit into the system. But <laughs> but it's like, you're can you nip that yeah. in the bud? Can you tell us yeah. what? So if you if you have an impacted thyroid, or if you if you're lacking a thyroid, should yeah. you be not fasting? Should you not be on a ketogenic diet, or is that bunk? Well, 
I look at the whole train. So, right. I'm not just looking at one variable. And that's, I think what, I think that's what happens. People get myopic. And when you get myopic, you get in trouble. But really what I've seen the opposite to be true is people with non-functioning horm um, hormones or non-functioning thyroids or non-functioning adrenal organs actually stabilize it. Because when I think of hormonal health, the balance is not about estrogen, progesterone, DHEA, pregnenolin. In fact, in my population of patients, that is such a no-no, but those things on board. I am not a fan. I'm all of my colleagues who are bioidentical hormone pushers hate my guts because I'm really vocal about why this will make me um, have job security is they can keep doing that, but eventually those patients will be my patients, which I don't want. You know? So if somebody does do a bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, then you, you're saying that they end up, end up having issues that lead them to you. I would say, please, if you're considering bioidentical hormones, you need to look at your epigenetics. So if you have a CYP1B1, a CYP1A2, a COM-T, an ESR2, I mean, right now, 2.4 women will have cancer in their lifetime in the West. One in 2.4 women will have cancer in their lifetime, All right? So there's that statistic. Let's look at their epigenetics, which shows how do they process the hormones endogenously as well as exogenously. So we talked about the glyphosate, we talked about all the other things, the metalloestrogens, you know, cadmium is one of the, like everybody, there's a lot of people out there saying that every breast cancer has cadmium so far I've tested and I've seen that to be true, but I can't say that forever because I haven't tested everybody. Those are all metalloestrogens. And then we talk about the issues of what are really driving our estrogen imbalances and whatnot, and SNPs are a part of that. So if you have a patient who's CYP1B1, CYP1A and, and COM-T, they do not metabolize your hormones endogenously or exogenously, and you're pouring gasoline on an open fire. So there are class action lawsuits. Like I just saw a case this week whose mother, so I did a consult with a patient whose mother died of lung cancer, which is an estrogenic driven cancer, whose um, sister died of colorectal cancer, also estrogenic driven cancer, who has another sister who's currently fighting breast cancer, who's got this, this woman's 61 years old, also an army brat. So you can imagine all the toxins she was exposed to both as a child growing up, but also in working, being in the army for many years. Now she lives in Houston, which is a giant hot spot of cancer, like hub, super toxic, all the bins, you know, all the oil and gas industry. Her very famous women's health functional medicine practitioner five years ago, even though she's went through menopause completely naturally, her Functional med, very well-known named person, put her on bioidentical hormones. This woman's father died at 46 years old from an aneurysm. This woman has cavernosum, hemangioma cavernosum. So she started having seizures in 2015 because of this brain issue, which is all about tortured blood clot things in her brain. And it started after she had her mercury amalgam teeth taken out by a non-biological dentist. So a big flood of metalloestrogens into the system. She has an ESR2 SNP, which basically means that hormones make her blood. She's why Erica died. Like that, her, this woman's SNPs are like hormones will kill her. Her daughter has PCOS and had a benign brain tumor. You know, it's like a, you look at this whole pattern. She also has all the things they just said, the CYP1B1, the CYP1A1, all the things. First blood family with cancer put on hormones. Like this woman literally could sue the living shit out of this practitioner. And I kind of hope she does because it's like, this is the wake up call that we as women should be supporting each other in this as well. Like we're messing with fire here. You know, we are messing with fire and that it may look good and feel good on the outside, but I've been in practice for long enough now that I have never once 
had to restore a woman's sexuality, sensuality, skin integrity, bone health, mental health, heart health with an exogenous hormone. Ever. Ever. Because I'm restoring the terrain. And what we're really finding are the drivers of all of these conditions are three things. Cortisol, insulin, lack of oxytocin. So when we're trying to pump women up on testosterone and, and progesterone and estrogen telling them that's what's going to make their libido come alive, there is no amount of libido coming alive if you do not want to have sex with the person you're with because you resent them for some reason. That shuts your oxytocin down, right? No one's asking women those questions like, do you want to fuck that guy? Because that's like, literally, like, it's, you know, like it's so weird. But I get really hard. I'm very, I get like that with my patients, but I'm like, do you want to have sex with that person? Do you feel intimate? Do you feel connected? Do you feel safe with that person? What about your sisterhood? What about your family? Do you feel like you want to hang out with these women or do you know they're going to t- gossip behind your back the second you walk away? Do you feel like they're going to tell you the truth when you ask this? Do you feel safe among them? Do you connect? You know, while you're like this, oh, also by this woman that I was just telling you about, 240 pounds at five foot seven. It's not a judgment. It's just the fact that how would someone, and she's been like that since 1983 for her own telling of inner history. Thyroid hormones, her TSH is still a mess. Her T4 is still not working all this because the garages of her hormone receptors are so full of exogenous hormones and toxic hormones from around the world around her. There's no room for her natural process, her natural rhythm. And now she's got stage four breast cancer, you know, and, and, and she's triple negative. So they're like, well, you can stay on your hormones. Like hormones are a growth factor period, whether your receptor site says there's a spot on them, you still have things in circulation. We then ran her tumor, her blood biopsy, which showed the tumor cells, the circulating tumor cells that are in circulation and not part of the original tumors are estrogen positive. How interesting is that? And that, so I'm like, duh, because I see this all the time. So her tumor assay and what's in circulation and guess what? Conventional medicine does not work well on what's in circulation. Radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, they don't really make a dent on the stem cells, the tumor DNA that's in circulation because those are considered the quiescent cells that are moving about the building, seeing where they're going to make their next landing post and start to bring all their friends in for the party. Cancer treatments only treat fast dividing daughter cells. And so those aren't fast dividing daughter cells. Those are just like wandering around looking where they can like start a fire. So if you're then feeding those people like, well, your other receptors are negative. So we're just going to keep giving you more of the same thing that broke your your system. You know, these are things. So when I test someone, so when someone comes to me, I do the basics, CBC with differential, CMP, trifecta, which my patients have called, that's your C-reactive protein, your sedimentation rate, and your lactase dehydrogenase, LD, which used to be part of our metabolic panels, but we let go of them 15 years ago, thanks to insurance, despite it being the most important thing to look for, for metabolic mitochondrial health. It is also the tumor marker for all blood cancers, like lymphomas, melanomas, multiple myelomas. We don't even look at that. Never seen an oncologist just naturally look at that, which is bizarre. C-reactive protein is prognostic for how you're going to, you know, if you're going to survive, it's also prognostic of how you're going to respond to your treatment. So anybody with an elevated CRP, even slightly elevated above one, you're not going to respond to your standard of care as readily as someone who has a a low one. 
Sed rate is how fast your, your blood cells fall out of solution. So if you have a high sed rate, that means it takes a long time for those cells to follow out of the solution, which means thick, sticky blood. Also high sed rates are related to a lot of autoimmune conditions. So just everything is not perfusing well, moving slippery through the system. CRP is all about inflammation. LDH is all about mitochondrial function and metabolism. And when all three of those are off kilter, when they're out of my functional range, even if the scan shows it's perfect, that there's nothing going on, that you're no evidence of disease and your tumor markers are perfect, I know it's a matter of days, weeks, or months before you're recurring like crazy. Just like I saw with that woman three years ago that I was telling you about earlier. Her labs were frightening. And so, so going back to the, the question about fasting or ketogenic for somebody who is yeah. saying that I don't have a working thyroid. What? Yeah. So we just tell them like, start slow. Start slow, dig, uh, dig under, look at what else is driving it. See what your insulin levels are. See what your cortisol, your AM cortisol levels are. You want them between 15 and 17. If they're too low, that's a problem. If they're too high, that's a problem. If your CRP is above one, you're inflamed somewhere. That's going to throw things off in the system. Get a sense of what your base camp information is and then start the basics. We should all without fail be able to handle 13 hours. If you can't, like if you, let's say you can only get by with 10. Great, start there. Start to lower your carbohydrate intake little by little every day. Start to pull that out. Anything that takes added sugar, just get that off the table right away. My recommendation is if you still are eating a lot of grains and legumes, get your glyphosate levels checked because that's going to keep through keeping everything off, off kilter. Everything from thyroid to gut to hormones to blood sugar, everything. It just kind of dismantles the whole enchilada. I think it's really under reported and under understood, you know, and I think we need to be looking at that much more because it's pretty endemic at this point. So take a look at that and start to maybe start by taking out legumes and grains from your diet, or at least hundred percent, making sure they're organic, even though you'll still get some residue, start to move your amunctories, get your organs of elimination going, get your poop happening to, you know, one to three times a day, get your bowel, you know, hydrate, 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 half your weight in ounces of, of water, not coffee, water, you know, um, sweat, whether you're working out, whether you're sitting in a sauna, get those things going, breathe, whether you're doing Buteco breathing, Wim Hof breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, pranayama, whatever you're drawn to for those things to get the lungs moving, skin brushing, you know, get that open up your largest organ of absorption and elimination, get the amunctories open. And then you can start to invite things out, whether that's with colonics or enemas or binders or more saunaing or, you know, things along those lines to kind of clear out, make room, take stuff out of that garage. We talked about those receptors being full up, bring in maybe some more fiber. You know, a lot of people aren't getting enough fiber today specific to help bind up what shouldn't be in there. And if you don't want to take the fiber for whatever reason, the binders are helpful for that too. These are the things that are the basics of like, just cleaning out your cupboards, right? Like that energetic cleaning out your cupboards there. And then another important thing that no one ever takes a look at is what is the five closest people in your circle? You know, who's the five closest people around you? Is it someone who makes you feel good about yourself, who pushes you, who expects that you can do better and be better? Is it someone that it's like, they're always your person, like, let's just go keep drinking. Let's just go keep eating crappily. Let's just go, you know, keep choosing a really bad relationship, whatever, like, you are the expression of the five closest people in your life, in your world. And so I've been known to say multiple times that some people just need a jawbectomy or a husbandectomy or a spousectomy. Like those are often way more important than whatever dietary change you can make. Because if you're living in a hyper state of stress, cortisol, because of the people in your environment and around you, your insulin is going to stay high. 
your estrogen is going to stay high. You can keto till the cows come home. You can eat the most perfectly macronutrient balanced diet. But if you're still under high stress, that won't go away. If you're still constantly exposed to blue light and screen time and you're staying up past 11 p.m. every night and you're not out of bed you know, by sunrise and you're not watching the sunset every day and your sleep is off, you are not metabolically flexible. We know that two nights of bad sleep alone impact insulin growth factor response. Like it doesn't even matter. So when people start talking about the diet piece, I'm like, you can push yourself into a lot of states of being on paper, you know, and on a ketone blood monitor test or a ongoing glucose test. But what my patients will tell you all the time and what I've noticed for myself, my diet is really the least impactful on my ketones and my metabolic flexibility. Stress response is my big bear to wrestle in this lifetime. Other people, it might be sleep. Other people, it might be certain medications they have to take for whatever reason. So these are things you have to start to explore within yourself. It's not one cause, one treatment. And I think that's very seductive in all the conversations, like, you know, three hours into this, we're like just talking into the seductiveness of keeping looking for the answer, the diet, the treatment. Ultimately, we should all be metabolically flexible. That's what we were made to come here to do. Right? And again, there's a multiple ways of, re- of achieving that. But if you are eating, let's say perfectly, and whatever that might mean for you or the situation, and you're still having issues of being metabolically flexible, that's where you have to look at these other things. I talk about women, the three S's, stress, sex, and um, sugar, and all of them dance play together. So that ties back in also to like oxytocin, insulin, cortisol, like those are the same camp and all of them have to be addressed. And women, you know, kind of circling all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, women are far more sensitive to stress response than our male counterparts right? We are far more sensitive to how insulin impacts our cortisol and our hormone levels than our male counterparts. We as women end up taking on more stress. So it's, it's a double whammy. It's perhaps we're more sensitive to it and we take on more as well because it's not just, we need to be doing like a job. It's also, we need to take care of the house. We need to take care of our partners. We need to take, be a mom, be a sister, be everything to everybody. And it's, and so it's, you're crippling yourself. And I really, what you said about the five people that are around you is something that I don't think we hear enough about because it's a really difficult thing to extricate yourself from a situation that impacts you, that's stressing you out, that you maybe didn't realize that you were manipulated into this relationship or that that person has changed or that, or, or maybe that this is a family member that you were never able to choose them or, and so yes, this family member is in your life and you feel like you have to continue that relationship. Mm -hmm. And while it's difficult to cut ties, Mm -hmm. it may be the thing that's actually going to allow you to be healthy Mm -hmm. and building that barrier, building that boundary and saying, actually, I'm not comfortable with this. I think that is a lesson that it's, it's very, very difficult and very scary to learn to set, start setting those boundaries. But the more that we start doing it, the easier it also becomes a little bit. Because growing up, you do, you want to be Miss Perfect. You want to be everything to everybody. You want to make sure you check check all the box and that you're always available and we're always on and we always say yes. And for me, it's been a learning process and I'm still learning it of being, using the power of a no and Mm -hmm. recognizing how much that actually 
has other people then respect you more and respect your time more and respect your value more. It's counter to what we were grown up thinking that we need to be a yes, a yes woman or to everybody. And in truth, it's when we start saying no, that we also define what matters to us rather than just going with the wind and, and, and following everybody else around us. Yeah. And this is exactly a testament to who you are and what you're creating here, because you have been pulled into some amazing, um, you know, like pr- processes and programs and you know ideas that were really great, but they were there were elements of them that didn't resonate with you. And again, you have this wisdom in you that most of us will have to be like drug through that kicking and screaming or just like completely like just like just resolve to it where you recognize yeah this is really good I really love it really glad you guys are going this I'm gonna do my own thing like you at 24 saying oh I'm way too accommodating in this lifetime I gotta change this up you know you had that before what is so strange to me is how many of us don't have that inner we don't listen to those inner alarm systems you did that so I actually have a question for you like how did you start to listen so innately to yourself? Because that is how we heal from these things. That is how we prevent these things. So I want your words of wisdom in this moment of what inside of you is your little pilot light that says yay or nay in the way you move and function and relate and connect and create in this world. Hmm. That's a really interesting question. And one that I wasn't ready for. I think Ah. you got me. You got me. Uh, I think... I think I've started learning to listen to that gut, to that inner, like, mm, would I recommend, and, and, and it's been easier to think about it as if it wasn't for myself, but for a friend. Mm-hmm. So would my, would I, if I heard this story about whatever's happening, whatever this is, whatever this opportunity is, whatever this, um, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and if my friend told me about that, would I recommend her to continue down that path or would I say "Mm, maybe not so much because I'm seeing this 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 so it's I find I'm finding it easier I find it really easy to protect my friends and and just go mama bear on them but it's a lot harder to do it for yourself and and so maybe that's the moment of would I allow this for somebody else would I recommend this for somebody else does this feel right for somebody else and if whatever that answer is for all those three questions for somebody else then apply that to myself. I think also it's an element of, I've had a very, very lucky set of, of family and base and that, which, which has made me realize that I am not whatever the accolades say outside, whatever the, whatever's on paper, whatever is. And so to me, this like social media world hasn't really been of interest because Mm -hmm. it just seems really fake. And uh, and that's why it's not about the likes and the followers, like reading your own press clippings, that seems silly. Whereas seeing actual work getting done or, or changes being made, that is much more interesting because mm. yeah, it just, to me, going back to, to the, to the, all the commentary that you had about women in history, it's, they didn't follow the press clippings. They didn't care about what was said about them. They didn't care what was they, they just said, all right, well, there's a true North, there's a light somewhere, right? And, and whatever that light is, I'm following it. 
to somebody's death, potentially, if about going back to the witches, um, to, to people heckling them, to people calling them quacks, to people, whatever it may be. But it's that guiding light of, wait, I've got, I think the, the last bit is when you are faced with a, with a health issue of some sort, in your case, cancer, in my case, um, six concussions, which is ridiculous. Every time I say it, it sounds silly. Um, but when you have things potentially pulled away from you, be that your entire life could be gone in a couple of months, or whether your brain is not working and you are not your per- you, you are not yourself, you feel like you can't control anything. When that's pulled away from you, I think that is a, a wake up moment to say, wait, you don't have that much time left on this planet, whatever that time is. It could be a month, it could be 60 years left. You don't know. And I think that to me is the thing that's, that wakes you up to say, if I only have a month left, then what am I going to do? And why am I going to care about anything else, but what, Matt, what, what sits inside me and what makes me joyful and what, what gives me energy. And so going back to that, that comment about the five people that are around you, that is also, I think, where, where that drives me of saying, if I only have a month left, yeah. and that's a, that's a gruesome and, and harsh thing to think about. But Tim Ferriss, for example, had a video of, of saying that he very frequently thinks about his own death. Mm-hmm. And that sounds really strange, mm-hmm. but, I, but I actually quite love that idea because if you have that in the back of your mind frequently, then you're reassessing and saying, am I spending my time wisely? Or am I stuck in a stuck with five people around me that are not are pulling me down? Am I stuck with am I? Is it a job that's that's really not giving me what I want? And if I'm if I'm dead in a month, (laughs) then I've just wasted it. I've wasted this time, this time on this earth. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's the gruesomeness of I what, what would happen? Would I be proud? Would I be happy with where I'm at if I only had a month left to live? And if you aren't going to be in my, if I did only have a month left, then would I be happy with how today was? And for me sitting and talking with you for three hours, damn straight. I'd be really happy with how this day went. (laughs) Well, and what you're creating and where you're going. And it's like the people you're magnetizing into your circle. It's like that, that feels to me as much as we kind of talked about some of the heavy and the dark and the traumas and things of the world around us and health experiences, like all that, even the history I gave, I, I cannot help but feel we are in some type of a renaissance right now and that we are being called to stepping into our rightful place where we started this whole thing the healers, the wisdom carriers, the wise women, where all of this began. And we, you know, just went through this whole circle the last five, 10,000 years. And it's like, we are really wounded on the planet right now. Mother earth is wailing and begging for help and support. And, you know, it's like to, to see these powerful little things that are coming out of no, I mean, I've been feeling like I've been by myself in this process for almost 30 years. And in the last 10 years, I keep finding other people that felt like they were an island. And the past two years, it's like, we're like magnetizing to each other in a really powerful way that suddenly I don't feel so alone, you know, anymore. And I keep meeting people who are like, oh my gosh, I just, 
heard this and I thought the same thing. We're, we're, the light bulbs are going off simultaneously. And what you've even created with this gathering of people, I don't even pretend to know. Like I'm still on this journey. I'm 30, almost 30 years and it'll be 29 years, October 21st. And I still feel like I know nothing. I'm still learning. I'm still asking questions. I know what doesn't work. I've gotten really clear on that. Like other people like, yeah, I don't have to go back there again. And I know what to keep asking questions, to keep digging in, to keep saying, why do we keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting different outcomes? Why do we keep band-aiding things? Why do we keep you know, replacing function rather than restoring function of different things? So here, those are what get me out of the bed. And hearing you say that, it's like the level of wisdom you have of listening to your own inner voice at such a young age and going against that grain at such a young age. I mean, I think people would have said or asked me that as well. I was 19 when, the, when this whole thing really started happening for me. I almost feel like I was smarter then than I am now. I think because of the layering of the culture and the society around it, I feel like I knew more, like knew more, if that makes sense, than I do now. Sometimes I think life comes and you, ha- you start to get faced with the questions. What would you tell your 15 year old self? You know, and I was like, oh my gosh. One of the things I like, that was hard. Like I was like thinking about that. And this, even what you were just saying, it's like, one of the things I would say is like, hold on. Cause I didn't want to be here. I was done. I was like, really like over it. There were no options. Everything was like, it looked like all of my roads ended in a really bad place. You know, it was just like stuck in the labyrinth and, you know, in this dark place where I was, it's like, I, I could imagine myself saying, you know, all that trauma, all that abuse, all that disempowerment, all those distorted belief systems, all of them were to like enrich the environment. You know, that whole quote about Rumi, like the crack is where the light enters. For me, that crack, it was like, let's just make this as dark and murky and toxic and like unimaginably like non-obtainable or, or like there's no way out. Like, let's just make it as possible as the worst case. There is no way to come through this. And then we're going to blow it up with this thing called cancer. We want you to stick around because things are going to get interesting. Like, that's why I feel like I would tell my 15 year old self, it's like, it may feel so dark right now, but you just hold off in a couple of years. You're going to have this, like this crater, this like meteor is going to come crashing in and it's going to blow everything wide open. And then you're going to have a whole new perspective, whole new, a whole new lease on life. And one of the questions you also asked me is like, who are your teachers? You know, like I could think of major teachers, like nine-year-old Mrs. Richardson, who clearly saw that I was having some major sexual abuse and things going on at home, tried to advocate for me, got shut down by the system, my family, everything else. My 11th grade teacher who saw that I was suicidal and basically saved my life on more than one occasion, who also talked to me, taught me how to write and get my stuff through journaling and writing stories and getting this out there and starting to change and connect with this differently. My professor in college was the only person who knew of my professors who knew I was dying of cancer and also encouraged me to go to naturopathic school as a means of healing myself when no one would write me a letter of recommendation because they all told me I was too smart to waste my time at naturopathic medical school, that I needed to go to conventional medical school, that I was, they wouldn't even write me a letter of recommendation because they just were like, you will waste your thing. And they didn't know I was dying. So they didn't have that. So basically my other professor who did, he's like, you're dying. You do what you want to do. He encouraged me to follow that path. Fast forward several years into my practice, I cared for his wife in the process of her cancer diagnosis and dying and gave her four extra bonus years on this planet that they'd already given up on her four years before the Stanford medical center for crying out loud. And we're like, she's dead, you know, and she got to watch more grandchildren be born and she got to watch other things happen and watch these things. It's like, 
this man believed in me in this place, but the real teacher for me are the patients like that, that I've ex been exposed to all these years, but the biggest teacher was cancer. And how can you ever want to kill that, eradicate that, explode that, poison that, slash that, burn that, when it is just trying to tell you something, it's just trying to wake you up. It's just trying to heal you. We're very lucky to have people like you in the community, honestly, because you're linking so many, so many different components to health. People don't talk about how elevation impacts. People don't know the, the history of the things that you've been telling us. And it sounds woo-woo or it sounds like quack. It sounds, I mean, and it's, and that's the thing. It's up to people to choose. But the, to me, it's, it's always a, a combination of, if you don't know what's out there, then you can't make that choice. And I love that you are educating people about this. They can make their own choices about whether they want to go down the integrative oncology route or, or not. And that's all you can do. So thank you for taking the risks that you do because it's scary and, and I can understand the idea of, of feeling alone. But I think that the tide, I completely echo what you're saying. And I think that the tide really is shifting and you're one of the pioneers. So thank you. Um, and I, I'm really honored to just have this conversation and have you as a friend and, and, and a colleague. You are so awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to catch up with everybody in the group over time and keep geeking out on all the great lectures of you, people you've already interviewed. It's so rewarding. It's so much fun to be a fly on the wall in all of this. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is your brain fried from listening to all of that? Mine is. I had to take a lot of notes. Nasha's mind really is something else. She connects dots where others don't. Her book can be found on her website. And if you're a doctor, then I'd highly recommend training with Dr. Nasha as well. It's training you won't get anywhere else. If you learned something during this episode, will you do us a kindness and leave a review or tag us on social media? Let's share the wealth together and get more people educated about cancer, about keto, about how to improve the system both externally and within our own bodies. If you enjoy content like this, then chances are you'll love our global online private community of women's health explorers. You can join us at www.whealth.community. Catch you there. Until our next health exploration, stay awesome.